Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, July 21st, 843-661-0937 is our number. Got a question. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Reb. Good morning. Got a question for Reb. Mm. So I'm out of here at 10 o'clock. Sometimes yes. it's 1030. We have some other things to take care of at times. I'm out of here at 1030. I'm back twice a week to do a podcast. Uh, who who decides late in the afternoon when we shut it down, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, when y'all shut it down, who decides what's left on and what's turned off? <laughs> you mean Stick like with me for a second, Josh. studio gadgets and equipment yeah. and lights well, and fans? Well, and well, I mean, I'm normally, uh, MJ's upstairs at times when I get here. Well, he and I geared at about the same time every morning. So, so he or I are the first one in the building. When I come in the building, I mean, it would stand a reason, I think, to expect to be in similar status day after day. Yep. It never is. It never is. Okay. I mean, this, this light's What's, on. What, what is not on. to your liking? Well, it's not, Obviously, it, it something doesn't matter is, whether it's to my liking well, or not. It seems like it might. But, but it, no, it, <laughs> seriously, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, it's just not a big deal if the fan's on or not. Okay. If Josh's door's closed or not. Mm -hmm. If Josh's lights are on or not. If the television's on or not. If the uh, lamp on the desk is on or not. It's never the same. It's never the same. It, I mean, how many of you have a routine? Nearly everyone, right? Sure. Uh, as part of that routine, you do certain things a certain way every single morning because you have a, you know, a window of time to get all these things done, to get to wherever it is you need to get to at whatever time you need to be there. Um, it's just so interesting and curious to me that when I walk in the door, it's, it's kind of a game with me. wonder if the TV will be on or off. <laughs> Wonder if the lights will be on or off. Wonder if they'll be dimmed or not. Wonder if the ceiling fan in one studio's on, or the ceiling fan in both studios on, or the ceiling fan in neither studio is on. Wonder if the lamp on the table in the waiting area is on or not. It's like there are damn aliens that come in here at <laughs> night and play games because nothing is ever, ever um, the same. And I mean, it's it's almost like we've got like, gremlins, huh? We've got gremlins. I, I just think we have different people, you know, last one out of the building, yeah. and they leave the building that's in a different it. state. Is that I think fair? That's it. Yeah, and, and uh, if I'm the last one out, I'll usually try to make sure I turn everything off. Okay. You know, I just I make sure the fans and the lights the are off. conservation? Sure. Okay. Why, why, why leave them on? Fair enough. Uh, just, that's just something I'm kind of used to doing. For me, when I get here at 5? Yeah, but, but, but as you know, uh, these studios, uh, Josh's control room and – the, the talk studio are used for different things sometimes during the day. For example, the talk studio actually acts as somewhat, I don't know if listeners can picture this, but as a pass, a walkthrough for people from the front office to the back office of our building where the copier is. So once we're done, in fact, I think a lot of times the people that work in the office here kind of are looking forward to the show being over 10 o'clock in the morning so they can use the shortcut actually through the two doors of the studio so to get back to the copy machine. So disrespectful. Sometimes they <laughs> popped in here while we're on the air. They by, have. by accident. They thought, oh, and they, they closed the door again. But that's, that's a whole other story. Uh, but because of that, you know, there's all kinds of different things going on okay. and probably different people that are here and leave later and leave last. So who knows? I guess it's just whoever's the last person out, you know, turn off the light or not. Well, today, I mean, Josh turns his television back on. Um, some morning it's left on. Uh, but the television in his <laughs> studio's on, television in ours is not, because we're doing a radio show. Well, and I think what happened there probably, Josh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is we had the TV system set up for the podcast recording okay. from yesterday. And so if we leave that system on, it kind of turns the TVs off at the later in the day automatically. Anyway, I, I think that's kind of maybe what happened. And then Josh hooks it back up to the, the feed from the, uh, I guess, from the news channel or whatever. 
and now I notice the control room TV is on and the TV in the talk studio is off. I want to do something this morning. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Does that make sense? Riveting <laughs> and was that yeah. interesting <laughs> at all? It's just, it's interesting to me. It, it, I, I kind of chuckled under my breath when I walk into the morning and this light's on and that one's off. And I'm like, um, I, I just don't understand it. I mean, it would be like me waking up every morning and, you know, my, my toothbrush being in the top of the closet, you know, <laughs> and, and my deodorant being uh, in the kitchen. And, um, you know, the, the um, I mean, we all have these certain ways of doing things. And I've tried to convince my kids um, the, the repetition of life can be boring but very productive. And it's not, it's not the repetition is productive. It's the lack of repetition being so unproductive. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. Um, of course. They, 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 they joke around with me. I mean, my boys in particular, my daughter doesn't do this as much, but my boys will go to the beach without Tammy and I. And they'll do certain things a certain way. And my oldest son always tells my youngest kid, hey, you're not daddy's. You better put that stuff back, man. You know, you know, I mean, it's kind of <laughs> funny to hear them say, because I say, um, hey, has anybody seen that whatever? Yeah, I, to- I told him. I told him <laughs> that you would know exactly where it was supposed to be. That's just the only way I've ever been able to be productive in my life well, this, is to know where things are. This morning's conversation is kind of evidence of that. It is. I mean, yeah. I can be obsessed yeah. uh, by, by not putting things where they're, where they're supposed to be and, um, you know, just the, the, the repetitive nature. And, and I tell my kids, um, I'd love to live a life where I could be as nonchalant and, and as passive about these things, but I've chosen a different course. Um, I am highly committed. I am highly leveraged. I am, highly, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I am highly spoken for, so to speak. And my, um, ah, my, my zeros have to line up, so to speak, well, to keep my boat afloat in my nut crack. And that requires me to be uh, pretty compulsive about some of these things that my, my kids don't get. I mean, they, they're, they're not as um, into it as I am yet. So using one of your famous analogies, I guess I have to ask this this way. What is the perfect way the studio should be set up at the end of the day? That, that would be an interesting question. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, mean I, how would you like it to be set I up? Mean, I'd like everything to be on when I get here. Right. But that's unfair. I mean, that, that's, that doesn't make sense. I mean, that's not in the best interest of the business. I'd probably like everything to be off except in here. The lights, you know, turn down real dim. You know, these um these dimmer, we yeah. got a dimmer switch on the wall, yeah. and we turn the lights down dim. I mean, in all honesty, it doesn't bother me. I just think it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think it's kind of interesting that I walk in here every day. And it's one way, one day. I mean, there's some days I think somebody's doing a radio show. <laughs> everything's you know, on. And- here and everything's on. I mean, the televisions are on. The lights are bright. The fans are running. You know, the, the computer. Uh, I don't know. We just, we, we, we all have, there are some of us more committed to the repetitive nature of, and, and most of us who are like that have been forced to be that way. We just had a tell Ken call saying, sounds like you should call the winer line. Okay. Oh, there, <laughs> you, it, go. there you go. I could call the, uh, I yeah. could call the winer the line. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? I, I want to go back to something jo- uh, something Jeff said yesterday that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and I hadn't thought of this. I mean, normally I think of everything. You know that. But, but I hadn't thought of this. What would America First do? I mean, if America First was not a baby of a political movement. And for clarity's sake, let's agree. I mean, I'm an America firster. Rev's an America firster. Josh, I think you're an America firster by oh, yeah. large. I mean, that, you know, I mean, that, that, you don't have to be. Well, I mean, are, are you on a scale of one to ten? Are you a ten America firster? I don't know that anybody understands that yet. Um, I am an anti-establishment Republican. That means I was always looking for something else to suit my fancy. And along comes, you know, the, this this movement that I c- kind of related to because of where I come from. 
Uh, we talked about Jason Aldean's song yesterday. We actually contributed to the seven and a half million downloads that that song had um, yesterday. Seven and a half million. It went from one million to seven and a half million in the amount of time it takes the government to borrow a trillion dollars. Yeah. That's about a day <laughs> right. somewhere, somewhere there about. I think we're borrowed about. I, I did see this yesterday, and I read something in the Financial Times jumping around, but we always jump around early in the morning. Um, if the government does not, the, the, the United States of America has been the most financially irresponsible country on earth since COVID. Imagine that. I mean, we're, we're the Not empire. Not hard to believe. Right? I mean, we're the empire. Everybody looks to us for guidance and, and you know, do, do we ying or yang? Do we ever flow? Um, and some of the reporting I read yesterday, I mean, I'll give you the numbers. I think we touched on this a little bit last week. We're going in debt. Forget spending. Forget spending. You, you know, you've seen these charts and graphs and, and kind of um, displays of, you know, we're spending this much money. We're spending a trillion dollars every such and such. We're spending a billion dollars. We're going in debt. But I mean, this is not spending. We're going in debt, $63,000 a second. We're going in debt, $3.78 million a minute. We're going in debt, 226000 excuse me, $226,800,000 an hour. I mean, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $5 billion a day that we're going in debt. Somewhere between 4 and $5 billion a day. Not spending. Forget spending. This is just money we're spending that we don't have. Forget the input and, or, or excuse me, the inflow and outflow. I mean, there's, there's a, we've never had more money coming to the coffers of the federal government via tax receipts than we do today. And remember, I don't know, a couple of weeks back, ah, a couple of months back, we did kind of a segment on, you know, debt as a percentage of GDP. We always talk about, we talked about Defense Authorization Act as a percent of GDP. Um, you know, how big, the pie's getting bigger. The slice, the military is getting smaller, proportional to, it's a bigger number, but compared to the total GDP of America, um, because of our irresponsibility during COVID, we're heading to about the debt being 39% of GDP. But the Financial Times has an article here, um, and most of this is not covered by new revenue. But it's just not. The government is collecting more revenue than it ever has. But we were the most irresponsible nation on earth when it came to, you know, printing money and giving away money and, you know, uh, you, you can't work so here. You can't do this so there. You know, you didn't run your business so so here. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out one of these days. You know, put it on the tab, Joe. Um, you know, another round for the house here. Put it on the tab. Uh, nothing to see here. We've got this credit card. You know, we don't have an American Express black card. We've got unlimited. Even the American Express black card has a limit. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld can probably put a lot more on his black card than I can. Uh, I don't have a black card. But if I did, you see where I'm headed. Mm -hmm. But but no, th this is um wh whatever American Express has that Jerry Seinfeld can't get and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates can't get and Elon Musk can't get because there is a definitive total to their wealth. I mean, Elon Musk is the wealthiest man in the world, I think still. I mean, that kind of goes back and forth between four or five of those guys that depending on what Tesla stock is trading at or what Berkshire Hathaway stock is trading at, or I think they've long surpassed Bill Gates and Microsoft. 
But um, but but a lot of those uber billionaires' wealth depends on you know what the stocks were. They're heavily invested in the company they founded, and the majority of their net worth is you know relating to or relatable to the value of that stock. Um, but even they could exceed their limit. I mean, Elon Musk hypothetically could run out of money. I mean, that's hard to fathom. Warren Buffett um, could hypothetically run out of money. Uh, Bill Gates, same thing. Um, the federal government has, you know, um, <laughs> they've got a card that, that you know, exceeds the, uh, the authority and, I, I don't know, I, I think it's Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld says that the guy at American Express told him they, could, they invented the card for him. I mean, he says that, and, he, and Jerry's not, I mean, I, he tells it to be the truth. It's not some stand-up routine, you know, that um that they wanted to make this card. Seinfeld had been a spokesperson for um, American Express back in the day when that sitcom was the most popular sitcom on earth, and um and he was a spokesperson, spokesperson for American Express, and they wanted to create this uber-exclusive club of those who, and it's not really how much you make and how much you're worth as much as how much you charge. You know, what is the revolving credit? How much do you put on that card every day? I mean, if you're somebody making a million dollars a year, but you don't charge anything, you probably don't qualify for an American Express black card. But if you're making $250,000 a year and put everything, you know, every expense in your world on that uh, on that credit card and pay it off, then that would be, that would qualify you. So it's not necessarily attached to net worth. I mean, you got to make a lot of money to spend Two hundred fifty thousand dollars in credit. I mean, you got to make a lot of money. But that's, they want transactions. Sure, that, but that's that's what they're about. But I mean, they they want you know they want activity on that card. So if you're making you know ten million dollars a year and you don't charge anything, you're you're not of much value to American Express. Um, and I mean, obviously Seinfeld would have been a celebrity spokesperson, uh, less about his net worth and and his spending habits and more about um, you know his his can he market this product to a larger and larger audience. But they would even have a limit. And the Financial Times is basically saying that, you know, I'll, I'll read it verbatim. Through 2025, the trillions unleashed by the U.S. federal government will push government spend, will push its government spending to 39% of GDP, most of it not covered by new revenue. In other developed economies, spending is poised to fall sharply as a share of GDP, while revenues hold up relatively well. The U.S. revenues are expected to hold up relatively well, but there is no sign that they're willing to curb spending. I mean, that's, you know, we're the superpower, right? I mean, we're the place the world looks to for, you know, um, uh, guidance and leadership. I'll continue. Under pressure from Congress last month, Biden signed the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, creating the appearance of new restraint. Despite what looks like large spending cuts, of 1.3 trillion over 10 years, the U.S. deficit is still projected to hover over 6% of GDP or near 6% annually of GDP throughout the next decade. That means we get to somewhere. I mean, government spending, forget the 33 trillion in debt. I mean, the debt already exceeds total GDP. We're at about 116 or 18% of GDP. We're at about 32 trillion, 33 trillion in federal debt. The GDP is 26 trillion. I mean, I think it's 25, 4. I mean, there's a Fed evaluation. I mean, who knows exactly what the, 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 you know, the country's economy is worth, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, 26 trillion dollars. So the overall deficit has exceeded the total value of uh, the nation's economy. In other words, if we sold the economy, 
whomever. I mean, if, if Josh owned, if Josh had a, um, you know, a, a title to the entire economy of the greatest planet, greatest nation the planet's ever known, and he sold it to some Saudi oil baron, the Saudi oil baron's check still wouldn't pay off the amount of money our government has borrowed uh, over the last, what, 240, um, six or seven years. And I mean, we're at about $5 billion annually. It's kind of interesting to me. It seems we're not worried as much about spending anymore. The the spending meter, the spending clock. We're, we're more worried about debt now. It's almost like we, we realize those numbers are just too, I mean, it, it, nobody can comprehend that number. Let's get it back to a place where people can comprehend. And now we're talking about $63,000 a second, three, uh, $3.78 million a minute, $226,000, million an hour, somewhere in the neighborhood of $4.4-ish billion a day. But that's not what we're spending. That's what we're borrowing. Hmm. I mean, we're spending everything coming in the door, plus an additional somewhere between 4 and $5 billion every single day. And the debt is a little bit like the ocean. It doesn't take Friday, Saturday, and Sundays off. It doesn't stop at 5 and start back at 8. I mean, the ocean doesn't say, hey, okay, forget high tide and low tide. It's 5. I mean, we're stopping with our activity now. I mean, the ocean's 24-7, 365. Uh, the debt is similar to that. There, there is no, you know, suspending of the debt. That There is no slowing down of the debt. And, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and this goes back to, to Jeff's point. What would make uh, America First a prominent and, and respected political movement if they could fashion some semblance of answer to debt and energy? But that, that really impacts the majority of our lives. The, the reason that Rev doesn't feel as wealthy as he thought he would feel, and I don't have any idea what his income is, I don't need to know. I know he makes more than he did 25 years ago, but, but the reason Rev does not feel, Rev probably had a number, Josh probably has a number, I've always had a number. Man, if I could get to that number, I mean, I wouldn't have financial security is what I want, what I think I deserve, what I aspire for, and that number, I think, without question, gets me to that place. And you get to that number or get close to that number and you realize how financially insecure you still are. Well, that's the permanent expansion of the money supply. But that's macroeconomic stimulus. That's the government for you. But if you want to know why you don't feel as wealthy as you thought you'd feel when you make the income you're making today, if you've had a good run in the last 15 or or 20 years, the permanent expansion of money supply. It is, it is the, but I mean, it is neutered. Uh, what I'd call the upper middle class. It's, it's neutered the middle class. It's hollowed out. Uh, so some of the lower middle class into kind of the working poor, and it's all about the permanent expansion of money supply. And we're not slowing that freight train down any at all. Somewhere in the neighborhood of five billion dollars a day. Wow, that we're borrowing. Eight four greatest nation in the on, on earth, right? Greatest nation in the history of mankind. <laughs> Spending five billion an hour, excuse me, a day that it doesn't um, collect. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few. So let's go back to Jeff's comment. Jeff's quote or Jeff's uh, statement yesterday. Uh, it's just unfair to. I don't mean, want. I don't want to make it sound like I know what Jeff was going to say. Um, he called late in the show. We didn't have time for him to finish whatever his comments were. I mean, I know they would probably be uh, disagreeable to, to some of the things I would believe in his stand for. But he made an interesting point. When he said, okay, you're arguing that America first is where the Republican Party needs to hang its hat, right? 
I mean, Drew McKissick was 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 with us yesterday, and and I've tried to as subtly as I can suggest to Drew to begin. And I mean, Drew knows this. I mean, those guys are data driven. I mean, it's all about data. And I think you know one of the interesting things Drew opined on yesterday, Reb, was his belief, as I do, this election is not about policy. I don't know that we'll have an election. Uh, in, in the near future about policy. I mean, obviously, you got to have positions. you got to be able to explain or articulate your position. But the election today is about strategy. How do I get to 270? How do I, if you're a Republican, how do I go into Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, not down three percentage points before the first votes are cast on election day? Because historically, that's what the Republicans have believed, you know, we'll win election day overwhelmingly. Drew went into into some of the numbers about House seats and, you know, so, some of the statewide races and how the Republicans outperformed um, the Democrats there. I still believe, and I've said it, I'll stand, to my, uh, I'll stand true to what I believe. I think Trump's got trouble in 28 counties that are going to be unbelievably important as we get closer to uh, November 2024. Um, th- th- there's something happening right now. I looked on Real Clear Politics this morning. The likelihood of Biden being the nominee is less today than it was Monday. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's betting odds now. Uh, the polling doesn't reflect that, but the betting odds. And, you know, the polling is manipulated, distorted, paid for, you know, by this group or that group. I mean, if you're someone trying to raise money for Ron DeSantis, one of the smart things you can do is pay a pollster to oversample likely DeSantis voters. In other words, if you're to say, somebody asked me this week, how do you do that? I mean, how do you oversample? You go to those 28 counties and you poll Republican likely voters because you know they're less likely to vote for Trump, you know, than, than anybody else. And it gives you kind of an overrepresentation of DeSantis. I mean, if there are 28 counties in America that historically voted Republican that didn't in 2020 because of Trump, um, and you want Trump's numbers to be deflated and DeSantis's numbers to be inflated, you go to those 28 counties. I mean, they're likely Republican voters. You don't tell America that you um, oversampled in those 28 counties. If you want a high number for Trump, what do you do? You go to the counties in rural West Virginia, in rural Ohio, in rural South Carolina. You know, and next thing you know, you get a number for Trump's 57%. But that's not a real number, but but it's a real poll. You just went where you went to Trump-rich, you know, a, a voting base that historically has been very supportive of the former president, but if you go to those 28 counties, you get a different reflection uh, in, in the poll. It's it's a better day for DeSantis, and, and it looks like, okay, we've got a competitive race here. The truth is somewhere between the two. I mean, rural America and some of the heavy, heavy Trump country doesn't honestly reflect, because, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's not 80%. I mean, 80% of Republican voters today aren't America firsters. I mean, I think it's 60%. I think it may be a little better than 60%. I think it's close to two out of three, kind of ascribed to the principles of, of America first. But, but I think when you look at America first and, and you say, okay, what are, I mean, we know the principles, right? I mean, we know the bumper sticker. I mean, I've got the campaign speech down. The closing, um, the, the, Randy Travis and George Strait close country songs better than anybody, right? That twangy closing um, line. The, the closing line on a speech about America first is, you know, let's let's create strategy and adopt policies that advantage the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life. I mean, that, that's the 30-second television commercial 
but but w- w- there's got to be more than that. There's got to be some meat on the bone, um, so to speak. And the reason I talked about the debt, w- what are the drivers of debt? I mean, it's entitlements, defense spending, and interest on on debt. I mean, those are the drivers. Yeah, we spend money on education. We spend some money on infrastructure. I mean, we do some crazy things, some not so crazy things, some cool things, some not so cool things. But but the majority of our debt is driven by um, the entitlements. And I know some of you don't like me to categorize Medicare and Social Security as an entitlement, but it is. I mean, it is. You're entitled to receive a benefit at some point in time from the money you invested in those entitlement programs. Um, you know, Medicaid would be different because you don't pay in into Medicaid. Medicaid is for the, the poor people. Medicare is for the old people, as Strom Thurmond famously um, said when he was young. I think he was 91 or 2 when he said yeah. when he said that. He was a young <laughs> boat, young whippersnapper. Um, and but but the the only way America first and this is this is where it gets real complicated. If you're going to reallocate government spending, in other words, if you're going to take money away from Medicare, Social Security, defense spending, interest on debt, you you've got to get serious about the budget. So so America first can't reorganize its priorities unless it gets serious about about the budget. I mean, I, I'll give an example. I've always toyed around with the idea. I'm not king of the world, but I, I'm a guy with a busy head. I've always toyed around with the idea. What would be the impact on federal spending if the first $50,000 of income was exempt from taxes, state and federal? You keep it all. I mean, if you're, if you're you know, getting started, just got married, just had a kid, uh, you're making 40, your wife's making 30, you know, and, and you're just fresh out of the gate, you got 70 grand of income coming in. Um, what would it be like if 50,000 of that 70,000 were, were just completely exempt from any taxation at all? Uh, we can, we can study, pay, but, but that, that, you know, what is the cost to the government? I mean, you got these government, you got these plans, you got these programs, you got this spending in place. So you can't starve the government for revenue as much as you and I would like that. I mean, there's a practical reality in play that, that if we were, if Dave Baker's son or my son got married and they had $75,000 in joint income, uh, you know, as a kind of newlyweds, they decide to have a kid. Um, they've got a lot more money. I mean, they're, they're on, uh, they're, their financial situation just got a lot better if they're not taking, you know, 30% of their income in state and federal taxes. I understand you get child credits and, you know, home. I, I get all that. You, get, you know, you write off your mortgage and all that good stuff. But, but, but what if we just completely and totally exempted the first? I mean, it could be 75 grand. I don't know what the number is. I just talked about the permanent expansion of money. You know, 50, 75, maybe the new 50, to be honest with you, uh, as expensive as things have gotten. But, but I like that concept. I always have. But, but it, okay, I, I get it. You like it. I like it. I think it's, I think it's very America first. I mean, if we're going to incentivize yeah. people to get married and, and kind of start a life for themselves, then that's very America first. Tell you what, Josh, you get married, you and your wife, with the first $75,000 of income, you don't owe Uncle Sam anything. Keep it and go build a life for yourself. Me likey. Well, I mean, that, well that's, <laughs> that's about as America first as it gets. Yeah. I mean, if you're a, um, I mean, if you're a guy making a million dollars a year, you're still getting exempt on the first seventy-five. But it doesn't really rock your world. You still got the boat, the beach house, and the farm, right? I mean, you're making a million bucks a year. But if you're a newlywed, if if your Josh is starting out in a work career, and, and you know, you're you're that, that's a big deal. I mean, that's I mean, one of the most interesting conversations I've had with my two boys is taxes. You know, I, I don't like this. I said nobody likes this. 
Um, it's almost like when I gave you money, I didn't take taxes out. You know, when you didn't have the ability to earn, now you got the ability to earn. And and Uncle Sam's getting what, what they feel like is more than more more than his fair share. They're getting a little more conservative as time passes by. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, one's always been conservative. I told you the hippie kid I got, he's a, he's a little more he's he's a little less hippie-ish uh, than he was because of some of the um some of the taxing implications. But, but, it might be appropriate time to congratulate the government on winning the Powerball. Uh, the other day, by yeah, the way, what they get three hundred million, four hundred million, more than that, yeah, yeah four hundred million bucks, five hundred million bucks, a- and the and the ticket was bought in California. Oh, yeah. So so this guy will pay sixty percent, right, in taxes. Because um, if your annual income, I mean, if if lottery winnings are treated as ordinary income, and your income's a billion bucks, that puts you in the highest tax bracket. <laughs> <Yeah. right? laughs> Can we agree to that? Yeah, yeah. You, you're paying the same thing Phil Mickelson's been complaining about all these all these years. But, but Rev, so you like the idea. You're an America firster. You like the idea. The American worker, the American family, the American way of life. Exempting the first $75,000 mm-hmm. in income is good for the American worker, is good for the American family, is good for the American way of life. How do we make up the deficit? I mean, how, you know, if you starve the government, I don't know what that costs the government. It costs right. a lot of money. You'd have to figure out. You'd have to do the math and figure out, and that's when you got to reform Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, defense spending, uh, what if we cut defense spending from you know eight hundred and seventy billion dollars to six hundred and fifty billion? I mean, there's a piece of the pie, but but I just think when Jeff says what sort of policies would you advocate for? I get that you believe in America first, and I and I look, I I, I think a lot of Democrats buy into that. I mean, they, they don't buy into Trump because they've been convinced Cheeto Jesus is bad, Orange Man bad. I mean, nothing that he says or does is good for the country. That they, they bought into this media narrative that everything about that guy is bad, and if he's the one that wants to be for it, then you need to be against it. I mean, Americans have historically kind of bought it. We're pretty gullible people, to be honest with you. And, you know, the the, um, the gullible nature of man and the media having such a dominant voice have led many, many, many Americans to believe anything that guy says is bad. And I've not heard Trump say that, but, but I go back to the intellectual underpinning. What if J.D. Vance... What if J.D. Vance offered up as a proposal exempting the first $75,000? Because I've changed it from 50 to 75 because I think 75 is the new 50 because of inflation, because of the permanent expansion of money supply and the macroeconomic stimulus that we've, the government, not you and I, the government has um, forced inflation upon um, this economy, and here we are. So, so, so we, we agree that we're going to fund the military. We agree we got to pay, we got to service the debt. We agree we've got to fund Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security to some degree, right? But to what degree? I mean, if this new plan I'm talking about that, that, that really emphasizes America first costs the government, let's say it costs the government, you know, $300 billion, $400 billion. Where do we, where do we cut? Where, where do we find that new revenue? Are, 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 are America first Republicans going to be for higher marginal tax rate? On people making over a million dollars a year? I mean, is populism that rampant in the Republican Party? The party of small government? The party of lower taxes? Is the party of small government and lower taxes? Let me put Rev on the spot. My dear America Firster friend, <laughs> would you be go. in favor? I mean, it's either or. I mean, you can't say, no, I, I want them both. No, it's got to be either or. <laughs> and I can't say cut spending. We, we exempt. Well, they're not going to do that. I mean, they're just not. That's off the table. Okay. I mean, it just is. Um, now we could raise the, I think, I think there will be an appetite one day to raise the eligibility age for Medicare and social security. 
I think we'll be forced to do that at some point in time. And I think there'll be office holders who pay a price. They'll get beat in elections, but we'll get there. I mean, we'll be forced to have to reevaluate what the what the age is, what the requirement age is for, you know, Social Security and, and Medicare. And I don't think that's I mean, I don't think that's a I mean, it's a hard sale because you're taking something from somebody. But I think there's a way to explain that. But you're an America firster. You're, you're conservative in nature. Would you be for offsetting what it costs the government to exempt the first $75,000 in earned income by raising taxes on those making over a million dollars a year? Mm. Yes. Okay. That's interesting. Yep. I think there are a lot of Republicans mm-hmm. beginning to feel that way. That is I think against be good your, for America. That's against your ideological core. It is. I mean, because you're for smaller government, lower taxes. That's right. But, but the way you're going to justify it, I'll, I'll answer the question for you. You know how you're going to justify it? They've had a good run for long enough. I mean, those people making lots and lots of money. I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about the guy making 250 I mean, he's doing good, but, but he's not the guy I'm talking about. We're talking about the people that have made, you know, 6 and 8 10 and $12 million a year. And as Warren Buffett says, you know, pay a lower marginal tax rate than my secretary does. That's where America Firsters are going to find themselves. Over and over and over again. But if we're going to do things that allow working men and women to keep more and more of their money and we're not going to cut spending, we got to make that revenue up somewhere. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. My good conservative America first friend, Dave Baker, wants to raise taxes on rich people. Well, yeah. in conjunction mm-hmm. with the uh, the plan mm-hmm. you proposed, I'd be on board with something the like Royal that. The Royal Rev of Radio wants to raise taxes on rich people. You hear that, MSNBC? <laughs> he's available. <laughs> he, he's willing to do what Michael Steele did and John Kasich I, no, did. Nope. Um, the formerly conservative Royal nope, Rev of not Radio at all. wants to raise taxes on rich people. See, I knew as soon as I said that, I was contemplating the entire conversation. <laughs> Uh, have, where, where you would go later. Uh, imagine and, and, taking what you said out of context. Right. Do, what, and do you disagree or no, agree? I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, absolutely. There's got to be some reshuffling or reorganizing of the way we tax people. I mean, sure. I mean, I, I am 1,000% in support of that. What people don't understand, when you say you're going to raise taxes on those making over a million dollars a year, the same tax rate, apply, they get the same $75,000 exemption. Right. I mean, it the, the, the would kick in after the million dollars. And that, now, in all honesty... I would be for a flat tax, some sort of economic transaction tax. I would obliterate the IRS. I would obliterate the tax code. I'd come up with some sort of system of, of raising the revenue necessary where you pay taxes every time you bought something. You kept all your income. You kept all your payroll. Mm-hmm. You didn't pay any property taxes. I mean, I, I just think there's so much ambiguity and, and uncertainty the way we, we tax. What is Red's house worth? Well, it depends on who he knows. You know, is Rez House in Mount Pleasant? Is it in Pauley's Island? Or is it in, you know, King Street or Lake City? You see where I'm headed? I mean, I just think there's too much political favoritism that can be played when those things. Uh, I, I would I would just trash the tax code, trash the IRS. Let's create kind of a, um, a standardized way of taxing our purchases. And, I mean, obviously the devil's in the details. And there's some kinks and nuances to be worked out there. But it would be a much fairer way to raise the revenue necessary to provide, you know, wh- whatever programs the American people decide are appropriate. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on the air. King Breeze will go ahead and take everybody that calls this mess, everybody that voted Democrat, 
and I would take everything they have, put them out in the streets, and I'd sell it, pay off the dog, the bill that they ran up. But anyway, you know, what you were talking about this morning, kid, I was on the way in. You were saying that um, we're spending every dime we take in in taxes, plus we're spending an extra, what, trillion a day that we don't have. Is that right? Uh, we're spending about $5 billion a day. That we don't have. That we don't have. I mean, we're spending a lot more than that, but we're spending, we're borrowing $5 billion a day to meet our obligations. Over and above, yeah. Over and above what we're bringing in. Okay. Well, that's on purpose. And the goal is, of course, you know, to destroy the whole system, bring it down and get to a fiat currency. But here's the twist. So we have said before, I've said it, you said it. Maybe we got to tear it down to build it, to build it back. We said that. You know, you said it, I said that. We, I think we do. I mean, I, I think it's unsalvageable. I don't think you can scapel around the edges. Yeah, we're on the same page. So here's the irony, kid. They want to tear it down. I know what they want to rebuild, okay? I know how they're tearing it out. I can see how the evil forces of Satan and the Democrat fascists are working. I know what they're trying to do. I can see it. They aren't even hiding it. But what are we going to do, and what are we trying to do? If our goal is to tear it down and build it back the way we want it, my question is, how are we tearing it down? And the next question is, once we do tear it down, how would the people that think like you and I, what is our plan to build it back? I know what their plan is, but what the hell is our plan? Are we just gabbing at the Gulf? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Let's hold on to that. Okay, Reb. So if if we trust, Josh, I'll, I'll pick on you for a second. Okay. All right. I think we all trust Trump to tear it down. I mean, if anybody can be the wrecking ball to tear it down, it's Donald Trump. I don't trust Trump to rebuild it. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't think he's that guy. I mean, I, you know, I think Trump is a builder, obviously. I mean, he buys property and he builds golf courses and hotels and condominium complex. I mean, I get all that. I mean, he's a builder. But, but in the world of politics, I mean, I think he's known as a wrecking ball. I mean, he's the bull in the china shop. He, he's um, kind of the middle finger, middle finger to the man. But, but do we really trust Trump to methodically and incrementally create a systematic way of reforming? Right, let, let's say this. Let's go to the extreme. Replacing this form of government with, with, with one that better serves and suits the American public. Um, so, see, I think I'll interrupt you. I think Trump's right. I think part of tearing it down is to realign the relationship we have with China. To stop the illegal immigration and to create trade policies that encourage job creation in America. I mean, it's not that simple, but, but, but we don't have, you know, we don't have a, a round table with 30 economists and, and 20 politicians and, you know, a week long. You know, it's almost like we need kind of the um, just the opposite of the World Economic Forum. We need everybody, every smart person not invited to the World Economic Forum to gather in Lake City, South Carolina, you know, and, and get to work on rebuilding what it is. So, so, so Breeze's point is, and I've thought a lot about this. I mean, to me, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, um, Peter Thiel, you know, the thing about Thiel, and I think Larry's the one that said, you know, the reason Thiel concerns you is billionaires don't have to answer to anybody. So he can be, be his own cowboy. I mean, he can decide, at the you know, Teal's already decided now. He's, he's changed his mind twice in the last three weeks. I'm going to fund candidates. I'm not. I'm going to fund candidates. I'm not. I'm going to participate in the, 
you know, in the um, in the the Arizona gubernatorial race, I'm not. I'm going to participate in the Georgia. I'm not. He he can do that. What do you tell Peter Thiel? Hey man, you got to make your mind up. <laughs> I mean, you don't tell that guy. Hey, you you got to let us know whether you're in or not. I mean, Thiel's got a checkbook that can I mean cash a lot of checks. So you've got to go at his pace. You got to go at his speed. There there is no doubt, and I think Rev will agree to this. You've sat with me for eleven years. For the last three or four years, we've heard a lot from Peter Thiel. He has a grasp. He has an intellectual understanding of, of what the relationship with China needs to be if we are to put America first. He understands what trade policy needs to look like and some of the reform necessary if we are going to neuter NAFTA and, and replace it with some more American worker-friendly trade policy. I think Rev trusts Thiel to be in that room. I mean, I understand he's a gay Silicon no Valley billionaire. You got to be careful how many of them you trust, but but he's our gay Silicon Valley billionaire, right? <laughs> I mean, am I right, Rev? Yeah. I mean, you would agree when he's he, on the team when he starts talking about trade, he starts talking about China, he starts t- talking about immigration. He's a very, I mean, he's a, he's he's somebody who explains it with a lot more detail and specificity than Trump ever has. But there's no way Teal can tear it down. I mean, he can write big checks to help Trump tear it down. He can write big checks to help JD Vance articulate some of what America first stands for and means, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, I think does a spectacular job of explaining um, k- kind of the intellectual underpinning of America first. And, and I want to say this, I don't know how many Democrats are in that camp. I think there are a number of Democrats who are very receptive to America first, less to Donald Trump. They don't like the bull in the China shop. They don't like the irreverence. They don't like the disrespect. They don't like... The, the narcissism. They don't like the personality, but in their heart of hearts, they go, oh, the trade policy has been bad for American workers. Immigration, the, the, the lax enforcement of immigration law has been bad for the American worker. And that's what I'm out for. I mean, I can't speak for Breeze or Josh or Dave, but that's what I'm out for. But, but Breeze is asking to me the most relevant question. We are in the process, hostile or not, of taking over one of the major political parties. I mean, when 60-some-odd percent of Republican voters believe in the philosophy of America first, and we don't really have a philosophy, or maybe that's all we have is a philosophy. We don't have policy initiatives. We don't have a contract with America. We don't have 8 or 10 or 12 or 15 things that have given the opportunity. I mean, if America first ever gets a majority, what is the first thing it does? I mean, it's done a hell of a job in tearing it down. I mean, there's no question about it. And that's where Drew McKissick and I disagree. Drew says, well, the Republican Party has had these fits and rages before. Not like this. I mean, this is a, this is a generational realignment of one of our major political parties. I mean, we are in the midst, you are, I am, of a generational realignment of one of the major political parties in America. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens. I mean, parties lose their way. There's somewhat of a, a voter rebellion, and they get back on some different course and chart. So we know that we're not going the way of neoconservatism. You know it. I know it. The majority of you know it. Where do we go? I mean, if it's not globalist, interventionist, corporatist uh, Republican Party, what is it? And what do the policies look like? See, that there's a lot of work left to be done. Tearing it down's fun. Swinging that wrecking ball, man, hell yeah, that's fun. You know, let's tear this thing down. But, but, I, but don't we have an obligation to build it back? 
I mean, don't, don't we have a responsibility to create policies? I mean, if we say that we're tearing it down because it didn't represent the interests of the American worker, American family, American way of life, and somebody says, I get you, dude, but, but where do we go from here? I mean, let, let's argue it's 70% torn down. I mean, I think it's 80%, but, but let's argue it's 70% torn down. And, and you got Mitt Romney trying to tell people how much he loves hot dogs. I mean, it's goofy that <laughs> he's goofy and we're goofy for allowing him to be our nominee. But, but, but go back to what we're in the process of a generational realignment. What does the other, what's at the end of the rainbow? It's going to be fun, chaotic, crazy, revolutionary to tear it apart. But but if we tear it apart, what do we do? Leave it there for somebody else to put back together? Or do we enlist Peter Thiel and J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley and Rand Paul and, you know, a new general, Vivek Ramaswamy? He's the guy I'm most encouraged with. I mean, I think, you know, I'm talking He's about. impressive. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm saying he and J.D. Vance. I mean, th- those are the two guys that have intellectually explained some of what they think needs to happen if we are to n- not just tear the Republican Party apart, but rebuild it w- w- with some reasonable success. What were you going to say, Josh? I was going to say, because you asked me the question, it, will Trump be the guy to rebuild it? I don't think so, but only because, you know, he's he's kind of up there in age now. He's only got one potential term left. But I think the wrecking ball even though, you know, there might be some moderate Democrats that don't like that, is necessary at this point in time. I think that we are, it's it's not a fair system anymore. That's what I think. So I think in order to break that, it needs a wrecking ball. It needs a bull in a china shop. you know how hard it will be to build a fair system with all the ancillary forces? It'll be very difficult. But, I mean, but do you think that, okay, Josh and Dave and I got together with Rand Paul, Josh Hawley, Peter Thiel, and, and Vivek Ramaswamy, and we said these 10 things are what we need to get done. And that you, I mean, you think the lobbying committee was, yeah, yeah, that makes <laughs> sense to us. You know, let, let's cut defense spending by 30%. You know, let's reform entitlements by 20%. You know, let, let's cut spending by 25%. I mean, you're going to run into a lot of resistance from entrenched, you know, entrenched organizations. That, that believe, you know, that's their stomping ground. I mean, we, we, you know, we have invested heavily in influence of the government, and we're not rolling over. What does Steve Bannon say? You know, if you believe these people are gonna, going to give you your country back, you've got, without a fight, you've got another thing coming. I mean, that that's kind of where we where we are today. Somebody on the phone, let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Hello, Williams. Hey, um, Ken, you got a fact checker today? A fact checker today? Yeah. If the fact suits me, I don't. I mean, if the fact suits you, I probably will check it. <laughs> okay. When, when Trump left office after four years, what was the unemployment rate? Ah, six percent, maybe seven percent, Williams. Okay. What is it today? Is it four point three or four point four, somewhere thereabout? No, it's three point six. Okay, three point six. Six. Okay. When Trump left office. He lost three million jobs. Is that correct? I don't remember. I mean, that was in the middle of um of COVID, so, so there was a lot of economic uncertainty. The bottom line, the bottom line is how many jobs he lost. Three million jobs. How many jobs Biden created? 
over two years period of time. Well, I don't think Biden's ever created a single job. The private I mean, sector creates jobs. Williams, let me let me ask you a question. How I, does I you answer that question first? Then you can ask me. I, I don't have any idea how many jobs Biden has created. I don't think Joe Biden has created million, man. Thirteen million. So right. what what jobs has the president created? <laughs> created thirteen point. What jobs has the president created? I mean, 13, I don't care what kind of job he created, but he created thirteen point two million jobs. But but surely you can tell me you can tell me one job other than Hunter that that the president has created. <laughs> In this ever-growing economy, you're applauding Bidenomics. I respect that. I don't agree with it, but I respect your right to do that. But but what has Joe Biden? What jobs has specifically has Joe Biden created? Okay, he created thirteen point two million jobs. Don't tell me what CNN tells you. I want you to tell I me. Mean, I'm going by the facts, government statistics. I, so, and then I'm talking about CNN and whatever. So, so you believe, I, I Williams. That's you, why you, I asked you, did you have a fact check of that? You believe that Joe Biden has created 13.2 million jobs. That's the one government record. And, and I'm just asking you to tell me one of those jobs. Same record that Trump used, the government says. Okay, okay, I got, I got one more, couple more, two more things I'm going to do. What's wrong with Ron DeSantis? He's running against yeah, Donald Trump. Florida, man. He talking about black people don't have no history. Oh, it was nice to be a slave. Black man don't have no history. Um, DeSantis is just like Tommy Tufferville. He's just like Tommy Tufferville. Have a good day. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate that. I mean, you know, if you're saying the president has created 13.2 million jobs, what jobs has the president created? I mean, I'll agree that policy leads to job creation or not. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. Uh, my, my, my analogy or my comparison is the, the private sector creates the jobs. It's the engine. I mean, it's the engine that drives the economy. The government's policy is the oil in the engine. Is it is it good oil? Is it bad oil? Does the oil need to be changed? Is the viscosity of the oil, you know, um, what it needs to be to allow the engine to run as effectively and efficiently as it can? But but this this mindset that government creates jobs is absurd. I mean, the government creates jobs, probably created too many jobs in the public sector. And, you know, the, the, um, the transfer of wealth from the private to the public sector is something I talk a lot about. But Donald Trump didn't create jobs. Joe Biden doesn't create jobs. The policies lead to job creation. And I think when you have the, you know, kind of a transfer of power in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, it's hard to properly represent or understand exactly what the complexities are. I do know that the majority of Americans trust Trump on the economy more than they trust Joe Biden, even the ones that don't like Trump much. I mean, if you ask the public in America, who do you trust more to, 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 to I don't know, become the oil in the engine of the private sector-driven economy? It is overwhelmingly Donald Trump. I think by, you know, one and a half to one, somewhere thereabout. So, um, I mean, I get what Williams is saying. He's fighting the good fight for his team and his side, and I respect that. He's always welcomed um, to call here. But but to suggest that Joe Biden created 13, the only job I know Joe Biden created is nine. He's got nine family members who have offshore bank accounts. Every one of those family members have gotten paid to do something. 
We don't know what they did. Maybe we get to the bottom of that. Maybe we don't. So of the 13.2 million, Williams, I'll give Biden credit for nine. And they all share his last name. Take a break. Back in a minute. Is it the jungle of ignorance or the forest of ignorance? I've heard it both ways. I mean, is it the horse has left the station and the train has left the barn? Yeah. Or, okay. That's so exactly so, so we're, we're, we're consistently inconsistent, Something like I that. guess is what we're saying here. Yep. We're waiting on, I mean, this is live radio. We think in the next couple of minutes, uh, Congressman Russell Fry will join us. Scheduled from, at 730. Uh, yeah, I think he's either in Washington or Horry County, one one or the other, somewhere around 730. We're a couple of minutes ahead of schedule here, if I'm not mistaken. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We'll squeeze in a call here from Barry and Sherrall. Good morning, Barry. Hey, I'll make it quick. Great uh, great week, by the way. Hey, uh, Ken, did, did you happen to catch the censor uh, hearing yesterday of Kennedy? Yeah, I watched a good bit of that. I didn't watch was it that, live. I watched was it. Was that not back crazy? Well, I mean, they're trying to censor a guy who's there to talk on censorship. <laughs> and he's there. He, he's gaining in poll. poll in the polls on Biden. He's a Democrat, and they're trying to censor him. But he's, a, Demo- why, but he's a Democrat who won't tow the company line. But he's and a Democrat who won't go along crazy. and get along. These people are crazy. That's all you need to know. They, they want our kids. They, they, they want to censor people that don't agree with them. They don't believe. If you don't believe, they want you totally taken off. They want you thrown in a gulu, gulag. These people are crazy, man. But, but Barry, so, so stick with me. What is crazy about having all the power and wanting to hold on to it? What is crazy? I mean, th- none of these people, you know, believe in God. I, mean, I, no I understand what you're saying, but but if you if you if you operate in a world and function in an environment where you control the disseminating information, you decide what gets censored and what doesn't. Why would you give up that? I mean, if you're a Democrat, you're in control of academia, you're in control of the media, you're in control of most government or some of the administrative agencies in government, surely you would expect those people to fight tooth and nail to hold on to that power. Yeah, I guess I, you know, I guess I don't, don't, these people don't believe. You're looking at it from a moral perspective. They look at it from a power perspective. Yeah, and and, and they're not. They're not moral people. I mean, it's just, it's awful. I've never seen anything like it. We're as bad as we've ever been. Uh, I say tear it down. You know me. I'm all in. Thank I'll be you. the first one at I'll be the first one at the door. Tear it down. Thank you, Barry. You appreciate that. Somehow, some way I suspected that Barry <laughs> would be on the team of uh tearing it down. But if you tear it down, you gotta build it back. And that's the point I'm trying to make this morning. I think we're in the process of a generational realignment. And and if we're in the process of a generational realignment and we have a heavy hand in, you know, the the other side of the realignment. What are our priorities? I mean, that, that's what I've made. That's where I think America First goes from crawling to walking. And, and it becomes somewhat of a more mature political movement that inspires more and more people to be a part of it. Because once again, we're, we're finished with the demolition. Now we're in the process of advancing policies that are in the best interest of whom? The American worker, the American family, and the American way of life. That's the bumper sticker. I mean, that's not the weekend you know, and a think tank trying to work through some of these um, issues. But but I think we're well on our way to tearing it down. Our, I think we're at the beginning of thinking about what to replace, uh, you know, after this generational realignment uh, continues to, I, I don't know, I don't say come to fruition, but, but it's just, uh, it, it's left its mark and will leave an even bigger mark. Someone who has been a part in a very official way of that generational realignment is Congressman Russell Fry, he's with us this morning. Good morning, Congressman. How are you? 
Good morning, Ken. Doing doing very well. Um, it's been a busy couple weeks, but uh, yeah. Uh, well, it's good to be on the show. Russell, one of the biggest ingredients of this generational realignment is the fact that the Republican Party has turned into the party that it that, that might or might not be willing to dance naked on the hood of a Volkswagen at Woodstock listening to Bob Dylan. We are the counterculturalist. I mean, I mean, we're the party now that says, whoa, government said what? Government did what? One example of that was this week in the oversight when the IRS put forth a couple of whistleblowers that, that, that made some pretty serious accusations. The oversight committee heard that. What do you make of it as someone who is basically boots on the ground in D.C.? Well, I think, for, first of all, I mean, hats off to the, to the whistleblowers that came forward. I mean, these are not, you know, political appointees. These are not partisan individuals that look through things through a political lens. These are just career guys with families. One of them's, uh, you know, a, a Democrat, a self-described Democrat that – uh, but they both felt compelled to come forward because they saw something, you know, incredibly egregious over this over the Hunter Biden investigation, and it started off as an investigation uh, in bank records looking at prostitution rings, and it kind of evolved from there into to this to this really widespread investigation, to the point where you have these career officials that would come forward and, and talk to the Department of Justice. There was the prosecutor, uh, you've heard his name in the press, U.S. Attorney David Weiss from the state of Delaware. He's a, you know, Democrats like to point out that he's a Trump appointee, like that would color his, you know, his, what he would do. Uh, but they were, these investigators were stonewalled and, and, and uh, the normal protocols were not followed. For instance, Hunter should have been charged with a felony, uh, multiple felonies, actually, uh, but they weren't allowed to pursue those because the statute of limitations conveniently ran. And so what, what, what's really interesting, and not only the charges themselves that, that could have been, uh, you know, now we have this sweetheart deal that's come out for Hunter Biden, but the charges that could have been, uh, but really what is going on behind the scenes? Chairman uh, Jim Jordan and I kind of delved into the subject of Who's some? You either have the most incompetent prosecutor of all time, or this is the biggest cover-up scandal ever. Uh, and 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 who's to blame? Is it is it David Weiss? Because David Weiss said one thing to his team: "I'm not able to charge." Somebody else is telling me I can't charge. So he's saying that to his team, but publicly he's saying I had full authority to charge. And so I, I know this is like a a, a a dance a little bit, a nuanced dance, but. I think that's crucial. And so when we, you know, I wanted to set this up for when uh, Merrick Garland comes to Congress, because there are questions that I have about that, uh, and when David Weiss comes. But it's, it is it is big. This was bombshell testimony this week showing that there were so many problems uh, with the Biden family and that charges were ignored, that the, the investigation team was shelved and then replaced for doing their job, mind you. Uh, and then at the end of it, um, he was allowed to kind of walk off with a sweetheart deal. I mean, this, is the, this is the double system of justice, and this is why people have you know, such, such frustration in this country right now. Con- Congressman, a lot of that centered around Hunter Biden. Yesterday, there was an FD-1023 Fed FBI form made available uh, to the public. Senator Grassley, I think, had seen this form for a good while. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you've not. But, but it's now public, and this involves – 
a lot more of the president. I mean, obviously Hunter Biden and his, you know, his being a conduit or not to the president. I mean, that that's fair debate, and the and the the IRS whistleblowers talked about that case in specific. But now we've got a ten, we got a confidential human source telling right. the FBI that the the president and his son were were both involved in a bribery scheme. I mean, that this is right. a, an astounding allegation that most of the media are choosing to not pay close attention to. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And and at least as far as the, the investigation, I mean, they were, the IRS thing, they weren't even allowed to go into President Biden. They were told they couldn't, which was another violation of protocol. But you're right. So this FD-1023 is the same document that I saw a couple months ago. And we weren't, you know, allowed to publicly share that because, you know, the FBI, first of all, the FBI it didn't, they, they denied that it even existed, right? So you remember where we were a couple months ago. They denied that it existed. Then they said, oh, they had it. We asked for it. They said, no, we subpoenaed it. Uh, they said, we'll let you come see it. So we come and see it. But you can't share it with the American people. Uh, and, and it's just – this is what – when we talk about fighting the deep state, this is what it takes so damn long to, to get to this point to be able to share this with, with something that's it's not even classified. Um, but what the, the contents, can, to your point, are so big because this is the first time or one of the first times that you can connect – Joe Biden. Now, it's, again, it's an allegation. It's not a bank record or a wire transfer. Um, you got to get those. But it says $5 million to Joe, $5 million to Hunter. And that the Hunter's whole purpose for being on Burisma, they call him an idiot, basically, in the document, was because of his dad. Uh, and at the end, Ken, I'm sure you've read it, but at the very end, uh, this person, this Burisma executive, has 17 um, and this is the allegation in the document, but the 17 recordings, wire transfer, bank record receipts, two of those include Joe Biden, right? So this is when Democrats say that none of this connects to Joe, it's all about Hunter. Well, that's not really true. Um, to me, this FD-1023 also, and, and probably and most importantly, uh, it backs up the kind of conduct that you see when you look at the bank transactions. It backs up the conduct that you see when you kind of delve into the, the Hunter Biden laptop uh, documents and, and evidence. When you kind of look at this, it, it's kind of the same pattern. Uh, and that it's going to take, and the guy admits it in the FD 1023, it will take prosecutors 10 years to find this stuff out. Well, it's kind of true, right? I mean, this happened in 2016. 15. Uh, so I, I think this is bombshell stuff and we're going to keep digging it, but it's, it's, uh, um, you know, we've done more in five months than federal law enforcement has in five years, which is kind of sad. And Congressman, I think you can pledge to your voters, the people of our listening audience, that this is not the end. I mean, it, you know, d despite the stonewalling, despite the slow walking, despite the attempts to circumvent Congress seems to be committed to finding out whether or not these allegations are true. I, I think so. And I think you have a lot of stuff. I mean, you do. You, I mean, this is kind of what you call circumstantial evidence. Um, but I think you have a lot of stuff out there. And, and look, I'm a facts guy. If the facts don't prove it, I'm not we don't need to do we don't need to pursue any of this. But the facts dictate that this is this is important and that you have not only do you have the allegations themselves, but that you have the cover up by our government that are, are stonewalling investigations impeding uh, employees' ability to come and whistleblow on, on the activities of the FBI and the IRS and the DOJ. 
I mean, you really have kind of two problems in this. And, and the, the, the bad stuff, obviously, is about the Bidens. Uh, but it's also bad that you have uh, what, what appears to be, uh, if, you, if, you know, if you listen to the testimony from the IRS whistleblowers, a cover-up. Well explained. Congressman, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Y'all have a good weekend. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We don't do much serious on this show. We stir it up and we create controversy and and then provoke conversations. I mean, that's the intent here is to get people to kind of think a little bit about what they believe and why they believe it. The one um, day of the week, time of the day that we get serious is that about this time on Fridays when we honor our vets. And I've argued you know, you can be a liberal, I can be a conservative, you can be this, I can be that. But ultimately, our men and women of the armed services deserve uh, our support. Henry Humphreys uh, served in the military for 30 years, if I'm not mistaken. 30 years. He's with us this morning. Good morning, Mr. Humphreys. How are you? I'm doing well. So, so, so what led you down the road uh, wanting to be a member of the armed service? Or was it your choice? Well, it was my, my choice. And if you grow, grew up in Darlington and you worked in tobacco fields, that wasn't much of a choice. I figured I wasn't going to crop any more tobacco and hang any more tobacco. So, so getting off the farm. That's right. So I joined the military in 1963. And and two tours in Vietnam? Two tours in Vietnam. Um, one in the Gulf War. One in the Gulf War. So anything stand out about those those tours in Vietnam or the ones in the Gulf I always tell veterans, say as much or little about that as you'd like to, but is there anything that stands out? in your mind that you'd like to tell our listeners about in those three tours? Well, in the three tours, you know, you do wherever the military sends you. The sad part about it is we spent a lot of years in Vietnam, lost a lot of lives and spent a lot of money. And then we just gave it back to them. So, you know, you always look at that and say, man, you know, I I gave two years of my life there uh, away from my family, lost a lot of friends there and, you kind now, of wonder whether it was worth it or not. Exactly. And that's, a, that's exactly. a bad place. I've talked to a lot of Vietnam veterans who say that exact same thing. You didn't come home and go to the beach. No, you I came, didn't. You came home and got involved in Veterans Affairs. That's, that's and, correct. And, and you've helped, what, over 300 with veterans getting their claims, uh, some, of the, um, some of the programs the government makes available to veterans. What inspired you to want to do that? Well, when I retired from the Army, you know, I started – going to different vets events joining the american legion i saw a lot of veterans out there struggling a lot of veterans that that needed assistance and making claims a lot of veterans that needed to go into rehab a lot of veterans that were in the street trying to help them find find themselves and get back into the community so i started doing that i got a passion for it and i still have a passion for it i took care of soldiers for 30 years in the army and i'm still taking care of them and I just have that passion and drive to take care of those veterans that need assistance and help. And you're not doing it for a big paycheck. This is volunteer work this that you do. It's volunteer work. And I'm reading 300, over 300 veteran claims that have led to veterans receiving more than $269,000. you got to be proud of that. Oh, absolutely. I, I am. I mean, I, uh, we have veterans that walk in off the street sometimes, and, uh, and, and they're struggling. They're struggling in life. They may be addicted to something. We can... We have agencies that we partner with, and we can get a, get them into rehab. We have veterans that need to file a claim. We have veterans that need medical care, mental care, and we help them with that. And, and, and Graham Jordan, you made the nomination of Mr. Humphreys. Um, you're a paid employee, so he's got to make your job a lot easier and more productive. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I, uh, you know, just learning from uh, Mr. Henry has just been phenomenal, but it's just so 
great to see how passionate it is about what he does because, you know, as veterans, uh, we're mission-oriented. So when we have a mission to give back, you know, we do it to our fullest extent. Mr. Humphreys, would you, I mean, you talked about the, um, and I understand, I mean, we all do things in our life and wonder whether it was worth it or not. So you went to Vietnam, uh, it got real political, that's out of your hands, you question, you know, did we do the right thing or not? But, but if someone's young considering going to the military, what sort of advice would you give that person? We live in this world today, and I, and I talk a lot about it. We're trying to convince every 18-year-old the four-year college is the only way. And, and a lot of 18-year-olds aren't wired to go to college. They need to consider something else. Why should they consider the armed forces? You're exactly right. One is just patriotism to serve their country because we need a strong military. And, and I would rec- recommend those people that don't have any direction, they aren't planning on going to college, they aren't planning on any other thing in their career. Some, I mean, it gives them discipline. It gives them a vocation. When they get out, if they want to go to college, the military is going to pay for it then. But, but the military to me was a great career. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with soldiers and, and impacting their lives every day. Uh, one, of the, one of the greatest promotions I had was when I made e, uh, uh, E6, and I had my own squad, and I was in charge of them every day to take, make sure they were fed properly, clothed properly, and trained properly not just for their combat mission, but when we were not. So you impact people's lives and you watch them grow and mature, just like you would whenever you're a football coach. You get those freshmen in and you take care of them and you train them and they exceed and excel. Or else if you're a teacher and you see those students grow and mature into what they first came into your your class for and then you see them whenever they leave and graduate from high school. Just the, just the same. That's a great analogy. It, you help 300 veterans or over 300 veterans get their claims they deserve, but i got to believe there's some out there that have not been helped. That's correct. If someone's hearing us or, or if someone knows of someone that's had an issue. I mean, I was in politics, and a lot of people came to me and said, hey, i got this veteran friend of mine, and I didn't know where to see her. They might always see her Tom Rice's office because he was our member of Congress. But, but if somebody out there knows a family member who has served and they believe that person's entitled to some benefit, how do they communicate with you, your organization, Graham? How do you begin, how do you get that ball rolling? I guess is what I'm asking. We have a direct phone number that goes to his desk, and they call him and set up an appointment and come come in, sit down, and we will help them from beginning to end. We don't leave any of them behind. We make sure that they've got the proper documentation that they need if they want a claim. If they need assistance with medical care, we get them in to see a doctor. If they need whatever they need we're going to help with it. And Graham, that number is, and the name of the organization is, and, and the number. Well, the um, uh, organization is Hope Health, and then uh, my direct line is 843-432-2971. And uh, obviously, if you call that number, we'll get you scheduled with an appointment, and we'll see what we can do for you and try to take care of you the best that we can. Okay, thanks to both of you. Thank you for all your service to country. We say thank you. Some of our sponsors do a little better than that. On behalf of our title sponsors, Marlboro PD Electric Cooperative, Florence Toyota, and Pepsi-Cola of Florence, we've assembled a prize package for you that includes an oil change from Florence Toyota, gift bags courtesy of Pepsi of Florence, Tandem Health and FTC, and gift cards courtesy of Swipe Payment Solutions, Wholesale Carpet, Heinz Furniture, Piggly Wiggly of Darlington and Hartsville, Piggly Wiggly of Sumter, Manning, Bishopville, and Camden, 
the 19th Green Indoor Golf Center, plus a gift basket courtesy of Boykin Heating and Air Conditioning, and an overnight hotel stay at Hotel Florence in downtown Florence, and a gift card for dinner at Victor's. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Thanks to both thank of you. you thank much. you in particular, Mr. Humphreys. I know your son. He's doing a good job and a lot of good work here, here around town. Thank you. Thank and you. We'll thank take, you for having us. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So what did Meatloaf say? Two out of three ain't bad, right? Wasn't yeah. that a big song by Meatloaf? It was. Is Meatloaf still living? No. When did he die? <sighs> like last year. That's mm-hmm. what I was thinking. I was like, seems like I remember him dying last year. I'm like, really? Meatloaf still? I mean, he lived that long? <laughs> How does a guy like that live as long as Meatloaf lived? Get him turned up there, uh, Josh. Okay. I have insight into the Meatloaf situation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, he did the thing he said he wouldn't do. He said he'd do anything for love. That's right. But he, but he won't do, do that. And he won't do that. <laughs> so um, we've got Representative Lowe, Representative Jordan. We don't have um, Senator Rickenbaugh here. i got a Meatloaf story real quick. You ready? So <laughs> my wife do? and I get married. And I, and I told you... Um, you know, I, I married my wife before she realized there was a town other than Pamplico because she'd realize, you know, I ain't selling for him. I mean, I, you know, there, there's a lot better out there on the great horizon. So we get married and, and obviously we wanted, you know, we want to, we want to be a family. We want to do the right thing. I want to be a good, a good husband. She wants to be a good wife. Uh, you know, she started cooking and I actually cooked pretty good in the early days, except meatloaf. If you could eat the meatloaf in the dark, it tastes fine. But when you had to visually see it, you, you couldn't get past that. And she knows what I'm talking about. It looked like a volcano that half erupted. And she put cracker crumbs in it, you know what I mean, to try to get it to, to hold its form and hold its shape. And I remember like, hey, if you fix meatloaf, take the light bulbs out of the uh, out of the house so I can't see it <laughs> while, while we're eating it. But, um, but meatloaf lived to be how old? I, I don't know. I think he might have been... The like, 60 yeah, something nearly 70 years yeah, old yeah you know, like 400 pounds or or whatever um i want to i want to start here because because i want to get your take on this uh because i mean we'll get to state politics and we'll talk about some things but but i, I want to get your take on this um drew mckissick was with us yesterday um scgop chairman co-chair of the national party and drew has accepted the reality that there's this divide I mean, that, that there are there are some people. I'm not going to name a candidate. There are some people who will only vote for one guy. There are some people who ain't voting for that one guy, but will vote for anybody else. And they all call themselves Republicans. And I don't have any idea what percentage that is. I think I know it's enough to matter. I mean, in other words, if the one if the group that doesn't want to vote for anybody but that guy doesn't vote, Biden's the president. If the group that will vote for nobody but that, you see where I'm headed. Representative Jordan, what is your responsibility in helping heal that divide? I mean, it, it's it's there. You're nodding your head. Lowe knows it. I mean, it's something that, that we don't like to talk about because it could potentially be what allows the Democrat to win the White House again. I'm a radio show host who tries to encourage people to not look for the pure perfect scenario, but rather... Any of these are better than than the alternative, that being Biden and Bidenomics and all that. But but as an elected official, do you feel you have any sort of responsibility, not heal that divide, but but coach people into understanding this is the situation, here's where, here's where we are, and, and here's how Republicans win? So when you talk about the responsibility of it, I, I guess I would fall back to looking back over the last few years that we've been here and 
talking about the different issues uh, here here on the show and then the issues we've dealt with in Columbia at the State House. How many times do we bring up issues that we're dealing with that are forced upon us by the federal government? And more specifically, how many times do we bring up issues or deal with issues that are forced upon us by executive orders of the White House? over and over time and time again i can give you we can talk we have talked about and we will talk about example after example one of the most recent was um the president president biden uh didn't get his way um dealing with the the uh, massive debt issue uh, i'm talking about college debt and now what is he trying to do he's trying to end around it with an executive order and force his will upon um a high percentage of people that think it's the wrong path forward including the judicial process and system so the what we have to deal with going forward is tremendously affected by who is the president of the United States. So I get it. Um, I've supported folks, voted for folks, and didn't get my first choice. And then I have to make a decision. What's my fallback plan? Do I just stay home? Do I vote for you know the person that I don't think is the best best suited for the job? But I'm sure scared enough. That I and know enough that I don't want the person who's been doing the job to keep the job. So I guess it falls back to um, when I look at all the different facts. Um, so you ask what my responsibility is. I think it's to help um, get the word out of the things we deal with in Columbia that are negatively impacted by what we have forced upon us by by the White House. And and and. Philip, some people believe that doesn't matter in your world. I mean, you're governing South Carolina. You, it doesn't matter who the president of the United States is. I mean, Jay's talking about some of these, uh, you know, kind of, you know, things run downhill. Federal government has a lot of authority and power and influence over all of our lives. No different um, than the, the state government has to react and respond to some of the things the federal government does. But, but do you feel obligated to try and help? Well, once again, I don't want to say heal the divide, but, but rather help us understand that we're all on the same team. You know, you started this segment with two out of three ain't bad, right? Well, sometimes you don't agree on everything. If you get two out of three, that ain't bad. I know I don't agree with Biden and, and the crazy, radical, communist, socialist, fascist Democrats, right? I don't have one out of three I can agree. I don't understand how you can sit home and say, I'm not going to vote for somebody that I agree with two out of three times. Cheeto Jesus is is a unique unicorn that came along and and um you know it's going to be tough for some to vote for him and i find myself sometimes just struggling with with some of the antics that he has we all do we all why can't he just and you just (laughs) fill in the blank you know but you got to figure out (laughs) do you want another year of biden a guy who can't walk down an airplane anymore can't remember his name how to exit a stage i mean come on but even if you had Biden in his sharpest days, it's still socialism, it's still communism. This got there's no way there's two out of three with those guys. So I can't understand how anybody thinks like that. I really can't. I, you know, what did we hear this morning? Somebody saying that Biden created who was the guy Biden created Williams thirteen point two million jobs. Well, guess what? I just created every Friday afternoon. I just tore up the whole economy no one's going to work saturday and monday morning i just created uh, 500 million jobs you know come on it's silly that people how do you think like that how do you get your mind around the thought that biden created anything but but torture and and problems with us so i don't have to fix it 
people have to fix their mind to understand and two out of three ain't bad. That's well said. You know, it's interesting. There were folks that voted for President Trump the first time around and voted for Biden the second time around. And one of the things that they used to convince themselves, this is why I think Philip makes a good point on, uh, well, you know, Joe Biden's been around a long time, and they would point to some of the things Biden said or did 30 years ago um, and say, well, he won't be that bad. Restore normalcy to the White House. Right. He won't be that bad. And then we've had the last three years to point to and say, He's not the Biden. He might have might have even been at, like, talk about his sharpest. He might have even been a little bit more, a little less socialistic or liberal at one time. But the policies implemented by this White House over the last three years demonstrate that is not the case. And people need to remember that what who they're dealing with now, not thirty years ago. Weird question, and I'll start with Jay on this one. You you um you chaired some of the um some of the redistricting that happened in South Carolina. You know Trump said uh, Trump as the nominee. In 2020, yeah, in 2020, had 232 electoral college votes. If that election went the same way in 24, he's at 235. There's a net gain of three because of Texas picking up a couple of seats, Florida picked up one seat. Um, what is the likelihood that South Carolina in 2030? Uh, in other words, we project and trend. I mean, we start look. You don't create new electoral votes. Some of the, you know, they're they're transferred from one state to another. One state loses population, another gains population. Um, I, I got a two two kind of a two faceted question. Um, do we track during the decade the likelihood that the growth will lead to another congressional district, and does it make it harder to govern in a state growing as fast as South Carolina? I mean, in business, growing pains are hard. I mean, it, it really and truly is. In the truck body manufacturing business, if you're growing 2 or 3%, you know, I can manage that. Next thing you know, you're growing, had a big boom in the economy, you're growing 8 10%. You look back at the bottom line, it didn't make any money. We didn't make any more money because we grew too fast. Is that, I mean, walk me through, Jay, what, what kind of what your take on that is. So, first off, we were actually pretty close this last time around to getting an additional congressional seat based on the population growth in South Carolina. Um, so I would anticipate a high likelihood that we would we would get an additional congressional seat in 2030 when we redistrict again, as we do every 10 years. Um, the population certainly has exploded in South Carolina. I hate to be kind of a conspiracy theorist about it, but uh, you know we were we were when in 2020 in the redistricting process when it all started. Two things: number one, we were going through the COVID process, and a lot of people didn't get counted. I think the uh, the federal government has admitted to that at this point. Um, it's interesting to me because ultimately the federal government is in charge of that census process. And again, if I wanted to be a conspiracy theorist about it, I could, I would tell you, um, states that were losing population, um, maybe didn't lose as many as we thought they would on paper and states that were gaining and especially in the, the Southeast didn't gain as many on paper, as many, many people on paper as we all felt like they did in reality. So Yes is the answer. That that information is is tracked. Um, we do depend on the federal government because they're the ones who sort of bring it all together for purposes of census data. Um, so and yes, I would anticipate um, we we pick up an additional congressional district. And yes, there are significant growing pains when you have the population increase like we have in South Carolina. I've said this before. We're growing tremendously at a high rate, but we're not growing evenly is, is how I say it. We're growing very very quickly along the coast. Uh, and specifically up around um, the Rock Hill area, Rock Hill area, an offshoot of Charlotte, 
um, a little bit slower in, in the Greenville area, but still significant growth. And that growth, especially when it comes in, in um, geographically defined regions, can be tough to manage is from a um, you know infrastructure, education standpoint. So it's difficult to make all those pieces come together, but you'd much rather be growing than, than shrinking. And, and Philip, the economy's grown. I mean, there, there are more tax dollars to be spent, but, but it still is, is, is governing in a growing state, in a fast-growing state. I mean, you've seen it not grow so fast. And now you're watching, you know, the state you're responsible for governing grow at a at a very rapid pace. Is it is it how much different is it, and how much more complicated has it become? Well, from a statewide perspective, you have a lot more money for to to spread around. But locally, where that growth is, they didn't necessarily get all that extra overflow that got redistributed to the whole state. So locally, they've got to worry about a school building and a new road and and fire and water and sewer and infrastructure needs, and they don't necessarily get money sent back from the state government to cover all of that. So I think it's harder on the growth area. Now, they get, before you know it, they're getting a lot more tax uh, coming into it from, you know, your property tax, the things local like government. that, sales tax and all. Right. So, but, you know, locally, they've got the difficulty of that growth. Uh, South Carolina had two incredible years in the budget. A lot of that was growth here, and a lot of that was just, you know, the federal government throwing money around that hit people's pockets, that spent it so quick, bought boats, bought all kind of stuff in the world, and and so that money is going to slow down. It, this coming year, we're not going to have as much of that fiat currency that they threw up in the air to to help. So we have to be smart. We have a resilience fund. We raised that. Remember, we asked. The, the public, we said, we want to ha- have, we want to force government to hold back more money in case we have a tough time ahead. And thank you to everybody who voted for that, 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 that it required government to hold that. So no matter who the governor or who the uh, speaker of the house is, we're going to hold more money back in case we have a tougher time. This year's budget is going to be less than what well, won't be less than last year by a long shot, but it won't have the growth because all that federal spending will be kind of circulated out. Is there a tripwire? I mean, I'm asking either of you. Is there a tripwire when you access that money? I mean, is there? I mean, is it kind of? Is there a general consensus that has to be reached by by the body, or is there some just absolute tripwire that says, okay, now's the time to access? You know, the rainy day. It's a little bit like the strategic petroleum reserve. You know, it's at the discretion of the president when to access or or when not to, and you know, he does, and business leaders say, no, that's not the time to do it. Is there a defined tripwire, or has there got to be some consensus amongst state leadership? Yeah, that's tripwire. And, and, you know, we run July to the next June. That's our uh, that's our budget time. So halfway through that, then certain things can happen, and they, it can trigger getting into the resilience-type funds and spending that money if you needed to to take it up. We're, we don't envision that. We well, just, and, and, and the thing you guys have done that, that I congratulate, you don't have to go borrow the money. No. I mean, you don't, you don't operate at a deficit like the federal government. I mean, if it doesn't have enough money, it just goes and writes a check, Fed buys the debt, and we're back in business again. That's You guys have decided to put a very conservative uh, principle or policy in place. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Representative Jay Jordan, Representative Philip Lowe. 843 yeah, we, did, we didn't hold it for the hook, did right, we? I'm we sorry. Go. I'm sorry. It's hard for me to believe that Meatloaf lived as long as he did, <laughs> as unhealthy as he appeared um, to be. But anyway, that's a judgment from, 
from afar. Philip Lowe, Representative Jay Jordan, both are representatives from the from the General Assembly. Philip, we touched on yesterday, and I'm going to get your your take on this. So we, Mike Nunn was here yesterday from Florence County Sheriff's Office and talked about, you know, um, the encouragement he senses in law enforcement about young people now considering that as a career. No, nobody, I mean, we, we don't do everything because of the money, but but the money matters. I mean, if you're a young person and you're thinking about a career, you, you want to know what am I going to get paid? What, what am I going to make? And historically, I think law enforcement entry-level pay was too low to entice quality, competent young people to consider that as a career. That's something that you really went to work on and made that as a priority. Are you are you satisfied with what you got done? What else do you think needs to get done? And certainly there's got to be some sense of gratification when you hear Mike Nunn say, we're encouraged. Younger, competent people seem to be interested in law enforcement. Uh, I, I appreciate you saying that because I, I really think it was well overdue. We had, uh, you know, we went from defund the police to how do we get more policemen to come into that career or come to South Carolina from wherever they're being defunded. I mean, that's that's kind of part of it too. Uh, but two years ago, we had a 17% increase in the starting salary for all the state law enforcement. Last year, we had a 15%. Those two combined is a huge knock. It, it, it pushed them up. You can go to, to one of the prisons and make $50,000 a year right now, starting salary as a guard. Now, you got to want it. I mean, you, you got that's got to be something that you really, you're ready to do. But uh, law enforcement has, uh, was at an all-time low with morale, with salaries, all that. And then, of course, we started seeing inflation hitting, and we gave state employees some of a, a decent raise, but we gave law enforcement an incredible raise two years in a row. And morale is up. And I've gone to the meetings. I've spoke at some of those and listened to the folks and, and the guys in law enforcement are starting to smile again. And, and, you know, I think we, uh, we look at military, you know, people came back from the Vietnam war and they were spit on and just treated early. You've got to have a strong law enforcement. You've got to have a strong military. Those are things you have to take care of and you have to make it attractive for people to go to it because it's not necessarily an attractive job once you're there. And, and, and Jay, you're one of the good lawyers. So, so you see up close and personal, <laughs> Uh, and, I didn't know there was such a thing. Well, I mean, yeah, there there is, and, and you know, especially when you get in trouble, they need one. <laughs> you, find, you find a good one. But but in all honesty, Phillips conservative. I'm conservative. You're conservative. Rev's conservative. But but the most conservative soul in America has to believe that the government provides public safety. I mean, that's something we entrust in our in our government, and we need quality, competent people applying and holding those jobs. You know, law enforcement is one of those professions that it really needs to be and is for 99 percent of the folks that do it a calling. Um, what I think we saw looking back over the last 10 years or so was um, it is a calling, and so they'll do it for far less, even still far less than what they should be compensated with. Um, but at the end of the day, these people have uh, families and responsibilities and obligations um, in addition to their calling, um, and we saw it got to a point where it was so bad that uh, it was hard to get folks, even even though they felt the call to go serve and to, to protect that they had to think about family responsibilities and obligations. Um, you know, one of the things I was impressed by, you know, when Philip became the subcommittee chair over the law enforcement budget, 
and he gathered everybody together and said, all right, how can I, how can I, how can we help y'all? How can we help make sure you have the compensation, but also the resources that you need to do the job uh, safely and effectively? Um, and I think number one is just starting from a point of we're genuinely trying to get to a place where we're, we're communicating to you. We care about your compensation and your resources, I think was a big step. And then as he described over the last few years, actually, actually, um, doing it. Well, explain, do we have a call? Let's we go do. there. Uh, on the line is Morris County Sheriff TJ Joy. Hey TJ, you're on. Good morning. How's everyone? Good morning, Sheriff. How are Good morning. you? Good morning, Sheriff. I am lovely. I just wanted to, I'm not going to take a lot of your time, but I just wanted to say this to Philip, to Jay and Senator. I don't know if the Senator is there. I haven't heard him yet, but, um, Thank you for setting the standard. Thank you for supporting this office the way you have. I can assure you if the delegation and Philip wouldn't have taken the big step for me with this, we were able to get guns. All I mean, the county council did not have to fund the equipment. They, they The county council has been great. They stepped up, gave us I think our starting salary is um, 388 now. But, guys, that, that's that's great, and I thank you, because I can assure you we would not have gotten there. And thank you, Philip and Jay. I, pr- I appreciate I don't know if the senator's in the studio there or not, but it, it, is, it is so good to have support from y'all. And, and, and I mean, it, it, it is, and I'm sincere when I say this, thank you from the bottom of my heart, because where we are today, we were way, way behind when I took office. It, it, it concerned me, lost a lot of sleep over it, but I'm thankful to have a county council that has stepped up, Chairman Doherty, and all of the council, they, are, they have bent over backwards to help us to get the salary up, but it would not have happened if the standard wouldn't have been set by Philip and Jay to say, hey, this is where we need to be here. This is how we're going to get law enforcement back. Since the time that we, July 1, the, the pay increase went into effect, we've gotten people calling, hey, man, we want to come. We've got them. And, you know, now I'm having to set a policy of how far we can hire out because we got people from Chester, Field. we got them all over wanting to come to work that starting salary and you know i i just want to say thank you so much for what y'all have done for this office thank you sheriff we appreciate you appreciate all the hard work you're doing you guys no. want to kind of follow up on that no i was just gonna say thank you sheriff and i i can't tell you how um much we appreciate the work that y'all do and you have done um and it, it gives you a comfort to work hard to try and get these resources when you when you know that there are good people trying to do the job, trying to use those resources effectively, efficiently, um, and recognizing that they don't come easy because they're, they're the, you know, it's the people's money. Um, but thank you for all y'all do as well. Uh, thank you for saying that, Sheriff. We, we work hard for Florence and it's where we live and what we love. And so we, we want to see a, a good environment to live in and law enforcement is, begins that. I mean, without that, we don't have it. And you've brave men and women, I've done a wonderful job. We've got to make Florence safer. We got to keep doing our part. We got to hire good people and we've got to get you good safe equipment that you can count on to to have your own back. Um 
we started with the salaries of the statewide people, and that helped lift all the ships, right? I mean, water floats all the boats. And, uh, and so that did help encourage the council to keep up because, hey, people would have been leaving law enforcement locally here and gone to a state job if, if the disparity would have been huge. So the second thing we helped with is we did help with some equipment and, and the needs uh, for really, I think, the last three years in a row now, we've we've gotten what they call an earmark. And, and it's, it's what we brought home to our area. Um, be honest, we may have brought home more than our share. We, But we fought hard up there to get money back to our area to to take care of the needs. But nothing makes me feel better than to hear, hear something from a person that I respect, TJ, and from the deputies that, that you employ there. And... Of course, the city cops, too. I mean, it's, it's all the way around. Uh, I think everybody got some benefits out of that. But thank you for saying that. Uh, well said. And um, nothing like politicians lathering one another up on, on a radio. <laughs> I'll take Rick and Boss credit since he's not here. I'll, I'll, I'll accept the credit. We're, we're on Facebook Live. I mean, if I'm not right. mistaken, we're, um, we're, we're, trying to, uh, we're trying to every Friday morning. Uh, I don't know if we'll eventually get every day. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. I don't know if I got enough shirt collars on them. To do Facebook Live every single day. <laughs> I already got a comment but, uh, about that. Uh, on well, Facebook. I mean, and we also had a comment. Don't want to rain on the parade. Had a comment about um about local government. Um, th- there seems to be. I read a lot. I study a lot. I try to understand a lot. I've been in state government. I've been in local government. Local government has a responsibility. They have to have find funding. Um, but it does seem to me that some local governments want to be careful here. I'm talking about county, city, and school boards have taken advantage of the um of the ability to raise to raise revenue. I don't want to, Jay, I'm not asking you, do you think city and county and school boards are, are taxing too much or too little? But but it is a reality that, that people feel, property owners, taxpayers in general feel, man, I got the federal, I got the state, and I got these local yahoos. You know, after X percentage of, of my money, there's got to be a consideration for the taxpayer. I mean, there, there always has to be a belief in, or to me, kind of a uh, an understanding of, you know, the taxpayer, is he getting the bang for his buck or the investment he's making? No, I, I'll absolutely say it. They're taxing too much. Um, there's no two ways about it. Um, go back and look, as Philip did a great job earlier describing the the money coming in, the grow, growing economy, federal um, money coming in. Uh, one of the things I'm really proud of at a state level is um, we cut taxes. We cut, you know, um, an entire percentage off the tax rate, and we gave substantial rebates to folks that paid taxes into the system. Um, and honestly, I, I was naive when that started out. I thought that would be that would sort of trickle down, uh, like we've seen in other areas, and local government would do the same, and no one else did did the same. Um, you know, I worry uh, at a local level not to get not to step on toes, but we got this water issue in Florence. I worry the local government's doing what the state government did years and years ago. Um, if you look back at how we got in the road situation we were in, the state was taking money for roads and spending it other places. I worry uh, that the local government's taking money for some things and spending it other places, which is not a good recipe. Um, so, yes, I, I think the tax burden is too high from a local government per, uh, standard. Philip? I hate to step on the toes of my friends in local government, but the school board, the city especially, it's just ridiculous tax increases that they're asking for somehow you got to learn to live within the growth that we have it's not phenomenal growth but we are growing some here in florence i think we're poised to grow a lot more with the industries that we see coming and and interests that i'm aware of 
But I'm going to tell you that government can't live by raising your taxes. They've got to live within their means. Find a way. Is it fair to say, Jay, I'll go back and let both of you comment on this. Is it fair to say that we need more conservative-minded politicians at the local level? We, we tend to believe, I mean, I, I know in Columbia partisanship matters. I certainly understand in Washington, I mean, it's hyper-partisanship. I've historically always believed it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat in, in local government, some of these nonpartisan elections. But, but damn it, it does matter if you believe in big government or not. It does matter, as Philip said, if you're kind of a business-minded person who says, we got to run these programs more efficiently before we ask the public for more of their money. So there is kind of a, um, a, a philosophical element to local government. Absolutely, and there ought to be at every level of government. One of the things that um, I wish we would change if you wanted to see real change at the national level is you, you would go back to sort of a citizen legislator type type model uh, one of the things i'm glad south carolina has not done like a lot of other states is create a full-time um legislature we're you know we we have to work and on other careers and jobs to make ends meet we're not going to get by on that legislative salary on an annual basis um and so by doing that you, you have folks that are actually working and living and you know raising families and uh, earning a living in the community um I, i'd like to see more of that the realization that we all pay the taxes that we put on everybody else, and so we need to keep those taxes low. And, Philip, there's a reason somebody calls themselves a Republican or a Democrat. Well, there sure is. I mean, listen, we've got six out of seven, six out of seven of our city council are Democrats. Does that represent us? Is that is that what the city of Florence really is? It's really a system up there with, with four at-large seats in three single-member districts that's not drawn fairly. They argued a case, I think, in the 70s or something that, that it wasn't fair back then. Well, guess what, people? It isn't fair now. There's, uh, you can't tell me that, that six out of seven people living in the city are Democrats. And the mayor's a Democrat, I think. Well, that, that's an at-large seat. Okay, right you're right, there. you're right. That's one of those four. So, I mean, I, we've got to look at that. We, they're not going to change it themselves. No one gives up power, okay? The government, you don't vote to give up your power. We've got to take that power back. Very well said. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Now's when I would normally say. Tom well, Petty, one of the most One of the most underrated, underrated. rock and roll superstars in the history That's of right. mankind. Um, say it every time. My wife has a theory about Tom Petty's um, lack of notoriety in the world of rock and roll. It didn't look like Elvis. <laughs> well, I think that's her way of being kind. You know yeah. what I mean? He's, he, he was not a, um, uh, you see where I'm headed. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that, but I mean, you see where I'm headed. He had a unique look. I mean, is that he fair did. to say? Sure he did. Uh, and a unique perspective about his music. And uh, I just think that's one of the greatest lines in the history of rock and roll. And I try to make more of this than, than I probably should. It's going to be king if only for a while. Stand there in velvet or to sit there in velvet and give him a, a smile that would be nice what did it rev mm, to be king i guess and just sit there in velvet and give them a smile um <laughs> from the perspective of not being king well, I mean, we, sounds we, pretty cool and and this plays into the last segue i'm gonna make rev and josh nervous because they know the conversation that we had off the air so we, we talked a second ago about property taxes and i've gotten about six text people for and against you know the, the hypothetical theoretical proposal of you know um 
taxation without representation. Uh, you know, the king of England basically said to the colonies, you know, I don't care if it's taxation without representation or not. Do something about it. Uh, dump that tea in the harbor. So what? Um, next thing you know, we're in a revolutionary war and Francis Marion's having guerrilla warfare before we knew about guerrilla warfare. And um, the rest, as they say in Francais, is histoire. But it was a, it was a I mean, we, we theorized on what should or should not happen. Um, who was the greatest political theorist in the history of America? I know who you're going to say. Well, I mean, it, I don't think it's, I, I mean, we, we can argue who the most important founder is. I mean, that, that's a fair debate. Um, th- there have been books written about Adams, books written about Madison, Hamilton, Washington. Uh, you know, I mean, th- th- there are a multitude of opinions, v- very justified opinions about whose fingerprints are most prevalent on uh, the American experiment. To me, it's Jefferson. And I think it's pretty hard to argue that Jefferson was not the greatest political theorist slash philosopher in, in American history. So we, we talked yesterday a little bit about this Jason Aldean song. And, you know, it's it's kind of an anti-violence anthem. Um, I, I made some notes this morning. Is that or try that in a small town? To me, I mean, I listened to it twice more yesterday. Uh, if you attack small town USA, we will fight back. I mean, I think that's a proper way. I mean, if I'm Ron DeSantis running for president and someone says, hey, did you hear that Jason Aldean song? What do you make of that? I mean, my answer would be, because I'm running for office, my answer would be, if you attack small town USA, they'll fight back. I mean, there, there's not this um, this complicity, that they, the, the, the endorsing of violence that happened in Portland, Seattle, Chicago, New York, um, some of these other major American cities. I think my word yesterday was permissiveness. You know that they permitted people to misbehave. Um, the Jason Aldean song. Uh, I guess the left is accusing Aldean. I didn't know he was a Trump voter, but he's an outspoken. He and his wife both are outspoken MAGA Republicans. Um, you know how that works in today's world. If you're a MAGA Republican, you're a racist and a bigot and a homophobe and all these other um, sorts of things. But but you know the courthouse. In, in the background, it's one of the central complaints that the political left has. It's a, it's a site where lynching took place years and years and years ago. And, you know, that is a back, backdrop, is dog whistle for this guy. And the MAGA movement, you know, one of the, one of the central theories is it's um, make America great again. Well, that may, you know, put you back in chains. You, you know, remember when Biden said, put you back in chains. Uh, I don't know of a single Republican that believes that or stands for that, or will defend that by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Rand's a little nervous now because, uh, uh. well, I mean, no, no, but when you go to the greatest <laughs> political theorist that this country has ever known, it's Thomas Jefferson. Th- th- there's a scene in the miniseries, John Adams, that I've recounted over and over and over again, and I'd encourage you to go. Uh, you can YouTube it. You don't have to watch the whole miniseries, but th- there's a place in there when his confidant is encouraging. Dr. Bold has talked about these letters, the correspondences between Adams and, and Jefferson when they were trying to make amends. And I think what they were aware of is that they were exactly who the Adams confidant said they were. Many died for the revolution. Many bled for the revolution. Francis Marion fought on behalf of the revolution. But two people, I mean, if you can have two North Stars, th- there were two North Stars that fought 
for the revolution. Washington had a sword. Jefferson and Adams had books. I mean, that, that they were the great thinkers of the revolution. I'm not diminishing Washington's aptitude, nor Hamilton's, nor Madison's, nor Franklin's. I mean, obviously, those were highly intelligent men, very capable and competent men. But when you look at America, the construct of government, I think it's, it's Thomas Jefferson and John Adams more than it's anybody. And, and I think at the end of their lives, they realized one day history will account the, you know, our fingerprints, so to speak. And there will be, I don't know if they thought there'd be books written, um, but, but I, I think there would be kind of an analytic of, of, of their work. You know, Adam's contribution, Jefferson's contribution. I think the interest in Jefferson and, and, and the lack of interest in Adams. I mean, I understand the HBO miniseries is John Adams. Uh, Jefferson's a very central figure in that. But, but I understand that, that Americans were going to be intrigued with Jefferson because of the conflict, the contradictions. I mean, how can he, how can he pin the phrase, all men are created equal, and go back to Mon- Monticello? Uh, why am I talking about, I mean, give me a chance to talk about Jefferson. I'll take you up on it normally. <laughs> But, but, I, but I, you know, try that in a small town. It, th- th- there are racial insensitivities included in the, uh, in the video. I mean, if I'm an African-American and I know there was lynching that happened on that ground, I'm certainly entitled to, to file my complaint, so to speak. But, but I, I just look at, and I told Rev yesterday, has anybody ever really gone back and look at what Jefferson said outside of the Declaration, or what he wrote outside of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, Jefferson wrote a lot about slavery. I mean, I, I'm not talking about, I mean, he's known for the Declaration of Independence. I mean, I get that. That's his, uh, that, that's his, uh, come on, Eileen. You know, he wrote a lot of things, but that, that would be his. That's his biggest hit. But that's his biggest hit, without question. But he wasn't a one-hit wonder. I can assure you of that. Uh, he was forever thinking about self-governance. He was ever writing about, about self-governance. Uh, self-government, and Jefferson basically said that there's no way around this racial strife. And I don't know that Jefferson predicted that racial tension would 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 permeate our soul for generation after generation after generation. But if you go back and read what Jefferson wrote on some of the um, what you call them in in Brady, deep cuts. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the yeah, album cuts. Go back and read some of the, uh, you know, if you're Springsteen, born to run. Okay, I get that. But what about uh, what about Tenth Avenue Freeze Out? Uh, what about Promised Land? What, what about Badly? Got to go back and read uh, some of the deep cuts. And 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 I think when you read what Jefferson wrote, he knew the struggle that that lie ahead. He knew how complicated it was going to be. He said some very controversial things. He archived. I mean, it's not like me. When Rev told me we're recording the show, I'm like, oh, crap. I mean, I, you know, what, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean, I, I could deny. You know, somebody yeah. said, I, you remember what you said last Wednesday? I didn't say that. You did say that, Ken. You have most of No, I didn't. No, I didn't. It's your word against mine. Prove it. Well, now it's easily. So you got to be a little more guarded. Not careful because we aren't smart enough to be careful here. But we do have to be a little more guarded about the things we say. And, and, and you know, the, the responsibility goes along with having a forum or a medium. So Jefferson didn't say that drinking wine, uh, you know, with Franklin at the bar. I mean, Jefferson memorialized these these opinions, and and you know they're forever archived. So so I would encourage you 
to, to go back because Al Dean is accused of being racist. And, and he's insulted by that accusation, and he should be. Because I mean, maybe he's a racist, but, but he's not racist based on those lyrics and singing that song. But that's, that's an absurd point. But, but the, 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 the bigger point here that I think we need to clearly understand is Jefferson argued for the abolition of slavery, uh, black people to be set free, but, but then he said it's going to be too damn complicated. I mean, you can't have all this diversity. You, you, one country can't absorb all this, all this diversity. I mean, you got white people and black people. You got this denomination of Christianity, and then you got Jews. You got all. It, it, it's just not going to work. I mean, there are a lot of things about Jefferson's writings that indicate he didn't believe this big, complex, multicultural, multiracial, diverse experiment was going to ever endure. But, but once again, that's promised land. You know, that's Thunder Road. That's not Born to Run. That's not one of the the big hits. That's not Dancing in the Dark. <laughs> you have to try a little you to, got, you got to go read or, or hear right. those. I mean, th- there you go. And um, and so, so when, we, when we begin debating these issues, I think it's critically important that we have some understanding of how this place was built and, and, and what the foundations were predicated upon and who... Who indeed was in the room when some of these uh, theories were, were, were kind of bounced off one another? There's nothing I would rather, I mean, if somebody said, hey, um, Springsteen concert in Madison Square Garden or Hamilton Jefferson debating one another for two hours, I've heard more to run enough. I mean, I, I want to hear Hamilton and, and, um, and Jefferson, you know, um, kind of not go at one another. But, but debate some of these theories they had uh, about our government. And RFK said yesterday, hey, man, we got to stop hating one another. I mean, we, we, we got to stop with this polarization. Well, well, I think RFK's pronouncements yesterday are basically indicative of what Jefferson gave fair warning about. I, I read these happiness indexes. You know, you know where the most happiness resides in the world today? Now, I take them for what they're worth. I mean, there's a happiness metric. Who are the most happy and, and satisfied people in the world? It's countries that aren't that damn diverse. I mean, it's countries that ha- have this ethnicity as the dominant, this um, race or religion as the dominant. And I think what we've tried to do is believe, take a Scandinavian country, for example. I mean, the Scandinavians pay a high percentage of taxes. They, they, they deliver a higher percentage of government, but their happiness index are off the chart. About everybody in those countries looks a little bit like one another. I'm not, I'm not advocating for anything. I'm not advocating against anything. I'm just saying that we are a part of a nation that, that has taken a lot of pride in liberating humanity. I, I believe this. I believe that if you're born an American, the opportunity for you to maximize your potential is better than any opportunity on this planet. That, that's the beauty. That's the genius of America. But, but along with that comes complications. And, and I think Jefferson was ingenious in foreseeing, because I think Jefferson understood that if we're offering people unalienable rights, they're coming. I mean, because the world didn't do that, right? I mean, the, 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 the majority of rights in society pre-America came from a dictator or a king 
a monarchy. And all of a sudden, um, you, you're a human being. You're a living, breathing human being living in a, a place where the king says you can do this. So the king says you can live there. And you've heard about this place somewhere over there where your rights are from God, that they're, they're, they're ordained by God, that they're not from some superior fellow man who says you got to stand here and you got to work there and you got to live over there. So, so I think Jefferson in his genius, and I think Adams was very aware of this. Okay, man, if we offer this to humans, they're going to take us up on it and they're going to come. And I mean, look at Ellis Island. Anybody ever been to Ellis Island? I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's chilling, but it's, it's, it's a surreal experience to go to Ellis Island and, and have a sense of how many people brought everything they owned in the name of what? Unalienable rights. Hey man, there's this place that will allow me and my family to live a life better than the life the place I'm living now affords or offers. And I'm not saying Jefferson for, foresaw Ellis Island. I'm not saying Jefferson knew that eventually, you know, the, the Statue of Liberty will stand at the New York Harbor and, you know, give us your, uh, what, what did um, what did Archie Bunker say? I'd love to find what Bunker says. You know, g- g- give us all those who aren't worth a damn. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of take them in and clean them up the best way um, we know how. But I, I just thought about it when we were talking about, you know, Nick's call and the busy head syndrome. And, yeah, yeah political theories will always be a part. I mean, I think Nick even said, man, with all this technology, what do we do to figure this thing out? And, and then Jay says, yeah, but the federal government, you know, but, but the federal government's got all these blockades and, and ways of making sure these sorts of things um, don't happen. And this is the sort of, these are the sorts of questions that I think Americans should consistently ask of themselves. If, if you know a little bit about Jefferson or Adams or Madison or Hamilton, don't just, don't just know, come on, Eileen. I mean, you know, go a little deeper. Find some of the, um, well, I mean, that'd be a bad example because that's a one-hit wonder. Uh, you know, but there, there's some of the Beatles songs that we don't know as much about. And they're probably uh, John and Paul's best work. I mean, if you ask Paul and John their best work, I doubt they say the hits. I mean, they'd probably say, I'm a little more proud of this or that or some song that uh, that we've not heard of. Um, and, and you know, the, the, the Declaration of Independence is a profoundly important document. I mean, there is no question about it. But, but you know, as we talk about Jason Aldean and Democrats and Republicans and, and Trump and Biden, RFK and censorship, it, it's, it's, I like to say it's a big-ass complicated nation. And it's going to be very complicated, extremely complicated, especially when you have one of these, what, what I perceive to be a generational realignment happening in one of our, in one of our political parties. Um, and, you know... The, the, the racial tension that seems to be ah, very much a part of American politics today, I, I just think if you, if you could, you know, open the casket at Monticello and, and just get one sentence from Jefferson, he'd probably say, I told you so. I mean, I, I told you in some of those writings, you guys didn't listen to, I mean, you didn't, you didn't listen to 10th Avenue Freeze Out or Badlands or Promised Land. You listened to Dance in the Dark and Born to Run. But, but I wrote a lot of these other things uh, because I, I felt I understood once you introduce unalienable rights, people will take you up on it from all walks of life.
from all socioeconomic standings, and, and people from all over the world come to one place. It becomes a melting pot, and it gets complicated. It gets extremely, extremely complicated. And then you begin pitting people against one another. You know, you make up words like racism and misogynist and homophobic and transphobic. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's par for the course, I guess is what I'm saying. And if you lived in a country that was much more monolithic, it's probably far less chaotic. 843-661-0937. There's my, um, what, what is it called on uh, comedy TV? Drunk history? Uh, that's not a drunk history. That'd be a, um, a redneck history moment. <laughs> Brought to you by whomever that sponsor may or may not be. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. James and Marion, good morning. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. How are y'all doing today? Good morning. How are you? Good. Um, just wanted to let you know, I just went by a ATM um, at, for Wells Fargo, and after I got my card back on it, it said, proud sponsor of the um, Mexican national team, and it showed three members of the team, which was um, female soccer, the women's soccer team. Mm-hmm. So Wells Fargo is promoting the um, Mexican soccer team, which I thought was very interesting. Hmm. So just wanted to um, throw that out there. Thank you. Appreciate that. You know, I, I'm a um, I'm a convert from Spectrum to YouTube TV. Appreciate the call. But, um, but I noticed yesterday and the day before when I – downloaded what am i calling it rev when, when i go on when, when i when i turn my television yeah, on you stream and, and i go to i dig us when i started streaming youtube tv um the the i guess the the screen that comes up at youtube's discretion i have no control over that now obviously i can go and find the station or network i want to watch um but it 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 forces me yeah, they're promoting a, a channel or well, a I mean, show it, it forces me to decide whether or not i want to watch the women's world cup or some sort of women's soccer event i don't pay any attention to it because uh, i don't want to watch it but but it's it's interesting to me that youtube says you know and i don't know what the capture rate is i don't have any idea how many people say, ah, it might be interesting there you know and click on and next thing i know you're watching women play play soccer but but it's just interesting to me that youtube has made that big a deal out of women's soccer. Don't have any idea what their motivation is. Maybe they got is. paid for that. Well, I mean, I'm sure they did. I mean, they, you know, do you think Google would do anything without <laughs> getting paid for it? Um, whether it's um, whether works. it's censoring opinion or <laughs> amplifying opinion, I think Google has proven that they're very um, profit-motivated. Uh, 843-661-0937. So, so, Josh, your take on the last segment is what? I mean, you, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, so you were talking about Thomas Jefferson and his take on race relations in America at the time and how to go forward with it. And I just wanted to add that I think this is actually a very important issue that people don't like to talk about for obvious reasons. But I think the point I wanted to make is that tribalism is something inherent in human nature. And we kind of tell ourselves like, oh, this is, you know, this is old stuff. This is, we, you know, our, our mindsets have evolved beyond this type of stuff. But the truth is, it's a genetic thing. It's not, it's a perceptual thing. It's not simply people's mindsets. This is something inherent in nature. And we as a part of nature 
have so that. So you in think us. we're innately inclined to associate with our with our own people, so to speak. Oh, people absolutely. of the same sex. People I mean, excuse me, people of the same race. Yes. Um I, I don't disagree with that. I mean I you know, I think we are we're more comfortable. I mean, we're talking about silos in society here. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, think, think about this. So if you are a country of, of 20 million people and everybody in your country, not everybody, I'm, I'm using that literally. I'm, excuse me, I believe using that loosely. But, but, if, but if nearly everybody, let, let's rephrase, if nearly everybody in your country looks like you do, it's a big-ass tribe. Yeah. But it's nearly everybody. But, but if all of a sudden you've got, forget 20 or 25 million people, let's say you got 330 million. I mean, let's hypothetically say that somebody tries to create a country one day and they say unalienable rights and everybody's to be treated equal and we're welcoming people from all over the world, different ethnicities, different religions, different races, different beliefs, different, you know, whatever. Um, it's kind of a have at it. It's the Woodstock of nation building is what it is. Um, you know, and and all of a sudden you've got this group and that group and another group and, and and this group becomes a little bit suspicious of that group and that group becomes more suspicious of this group. Um, I, I just think it's it's almost impossible to believe that the more populated and more diverse we come, the easier it is to govern. See, I've got this theory that, that America is at the nearly at the point of being impossible to govern. I mean, that's why I argue the, the, the breaking up of America. I mean, I, I've said that five, six, seven, eight years. Rev looks at me funny when I said that <laughs> eight years ago. I don't mm-hmm. think he looks at me quite as funny today. I mean, you know, I do believe, I'll give an example, that, that there's a little bit of me as, as a conservative Republican, somewhat conservative Republican, uh, an America first Republican. I like saying that. I'm an America first Republican. There's a little bit of me that would rather the Democrat win in 2024. Because I don't know how you do what needs to be done. So if you can't do what needs to be done, why do you want to be the party that can't do it? I mean, mm-hmm. if we've, but isn't that kind of like giving up? Just well, I mean, no, I, mean, I, I think it's just a, a a strategic calculus that somebody makes, saying, you know, why? I mean, you, you're telling me to do the impossible. I mean, if if you believe, let me ask you a question, Rev. Do you believe getting our debt under control is possible? I'm afraid not. But do you believe that uh, reforming Medicare and Social Security are possible? Doesn't seem okay. That way. So, so why do you want to be in charge of those things that you know will eventually lead to your demise? In other words, when the when the when the ship sinks, why do I want to be the captain? It's I mean, a, it's a scary proposition. But correct me if I'm wrong. You're kind of saying that like the in order for us to really bring people around to our side, we might have to let them see the Democrats screw up it, that bad. Isn't there, I mean, I'm a parent, tough love. I mean, we've heard of tough love. Um, the hardest thing for a parent to do, Rev, can you relate to this? The hardest thing for a parent to do is watch your kid make a mistake and have to deal with what comes along with it. I mean, I, I, I can tell you this, guys, as, as someone who had a child addicted to opiates, there is nothing as painful as that. I mean, I have no idea what it feels like to, to, to be submersed, uh, you know, when I, uh, I got no idea what it likes to be a POW. I mean, I can't relate to that. I mean, I, you know, I've heard stories, I've read about things. It, it, it seems to me, wow. I mean, really, they would do that to another human being, the mafia. I mean, I'm thinking about things you've read about the mafia, you know, doing this, or drug cartels, I'm um, doing that. From my personal life experience, nothing hurts more than, than your kid making a big mistake and watching them 
have to suffer and deal with that consequence that you can't take care of. I mean, you, you just can't, you can't fix it. So, so if you love America and you've accepted that these certain things have to change or we're going belly up. Now, now some believe, I guess in utopia, so some believe in, you know, the, the song Imagine and, you know, that th- there's a better place on the other side. I think America has a really complicated next 25 or 30 years. And, and that's why I talk about this, this generational realignment. You know, um, there's a little bit of me, not a lot, but there's a little bit of me that believes this generational realignment of the Republican Party leads to a separation of the country. It, it leads to North Korea, South Korea, you know, um, North Ireland, uh, Southern Ireland, you know what I mean? Uh, no, uh, what am I trying? The one that Bono and you two had so much uh, to say about you. I mean, I, I just think there's, um, I, I just think there's a chance that it gets so volatile and so chaotic that, that, that we begin seeing, and I do believe a lot of this is born out of diversity because I think we've, I think liberals have tried to convince themselves. I can't speak for a liberal because I'm not one, but I think liberals have convinced themselves. Remember when, when, uh, when Bill Clinton, first time I've heard it in my life, Clinton says diversity is the strength of America. And I, I remember thinking to myself, no, it's not right. <laughs> I mean, that's not. Diversity has nothing to do with strength. I mean, strength is competent people doing smart things. I mean, whether it's business, sports, talk radio. I mean, this radio show, I mean, what if we decided got to have a black, a woman, and a white dude? Doesn't matter if it's any good, but we're diverse. We're putting checks in boxes. And I think the liberals believe, and this goes back to Obama, the mindset of Obama, the spoken word, if said uh, uh, eloquently and, and, and consistently enough, becomes reality. And I think there are some liberals, I mean, conservatives have their problems too. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying, hey, all liberals are bad and all conservatives are good. You know, all, all Democrats are bad, all Republicans are good. I'm certainly, and you've never heard me, suggest that for a second. I think Republican philosophies are better. I think limited government principles are in our best interest, but, but I certainly understand those that have a fundamental disagreement. Um, but, but it's a very complicated um, debate. And, and, and as we progress, because I'm thinking about the, the reason I went down this road, I listened to the song twice, and I don't know how you get offended by that song unless you're looking to get offended unless it's in your best interest to be offended, unless there's a group of people who are figuring out a way to monetize, mm. you know, be, you being offended by that. So, so division and unrest has become unbelievably lucrative in, in America. And the marketplace is rewarding those who create division far more than it's rewarding those who try to speak in reasonable terms. Bill O'Reilly and, and, um, and what's his name? Uh, his name escapes me. How in the world could that? Geraldo Rivera. I mean, he's one of the most noted names in, in media. I mean, they, they went at it on O'Reilly's um, podcast the other day about, you know, um, the people that we trust to tell us the truth just won't tell us the truth anymore. And, and Geraldo was very interesting. Uh, O'Reilly said, I saw you on, on The View, and you did something interesting to me. They tried to lure you into throwing Fox News under the bus, and you didn't do it. And Araldo said, Bill, I've done this as long as you have. Fox News put food on my table for 23 years. There are great people at Fox. And, and I would never, you know, disparage those who helped me feed my family for 23 years. But they got out of the business of telling the truth. 
And and I'm not accusing Fox of anything that MSNBC or CBS or ABC. And maybe Josh, I mean, you would be. Maybe that's the crux of the matter. If truth is not truth, then what is? I mean, what what are we? Ba- In other words, if Jason Aldean can be accused of being a racist, whether it's true or not, then then I mean that that that's a dangerous thing to accuse someone and his and his wife of being a racist based on the interpret or your interpretation of a song and the right does it i mean the right does things as as you know as not they don't do it as well <laughs> i can assure you with that maybe the consternation is because the right's getting better at it you know we, we red, red wants the right to fight back i mean he thinks they've taken it on the chin mm-hmm. i mean we march mitt romney out there and you know they, they accuse romney of all these things and well i mean i want to be a gentleman and a statesman Maybe the, the the hyper and elevated <sighs> dissent or, or dissension is because the right is choosing now to kind of match wits. You know, you want to call us, uh, call us this, and maybe that's the kind of a reflection of Trump. You know, Trump was not, I mean, he was a counterpuncher. You know, when, when they called Romney this, Romney said, well, I'm not that. But, but he didn't say, but you're that. You know, there, there's another sentence that people on the right have historically said, well, why not punch back? I mean, why not throw, if they're throwing a punch at you, why not throw a punch back? So you're not going to have vitriol and hatred and animus when one side attacks and the other side doesn't attack back. But all of a sudden, one side attacks and the other side attacks back equally. It's going to get, I mean, it gets pretty volatile. And maybe that's where, maybe that's where we are. But, but at the center of this, and it's not all about the song. But they're accusing a guy and his wife of being racist. And, and I listen to the song, and there is, I mean, a reasonable person cannot conclude that that guy is racist based on that song. But society has kind of lost its way, and CMT and some of these, you know, left-leaning publications, and I'll go back to this, and then we'll take our break and do trivia. At the, at the center of all this is a lack of debate. We talked about Scandinavian countries being almost monolithic. Uh, so some of the Middle Eastern countries being almost uh, monolithic. The media has become, those we trust to tell us the truth, have been more interested in not telling us the truth. And out of that comes, you know, calling a guy racist when he is or is not. Um, calling someone a liar if they are or are not. Talk and, about and, not allowing debate, the hearing that, yesterday. That's where I was headed. Not allowing a guy to say, no, I'm not a racist. I mean, why, why doesn't Jason Aldean get a chance to go on Good Morning America, The View, and say, I'm not a racist? I mean, I wrote a controversial song. Who hadn't? I mean, at, at The View, how many of your heroes in music have not written controversial songs? 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Back with trivia. Just takes Mondays to make Fridays. want to thank our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. They make this craziness possible, not just on Mondays and Fridays, but they help us all during the week. We had a... Um, Kind of a joint promotion with them yesterday. Yeah, the thirst uh, responders. Yeah, the thirst responders. I think our boy Josh went out uh, on the town. He did. I did. Passing out some refreshments, some Gatorade and... Aquafina uh, water. Did you carry any fast twitch with you? Huh? I did not. You kept the fast twitch to yourself, That you? was all okay. me. <laughs> you didn't jack any of my Celsius, did you? <laughs> not today. Good deal. Good deal. Good deal. Okay, here's our question. Uh, the correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of Takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. What is the most populated country on the planet? The most populated country on the planet. For you folks in Pamplico, that means the country with the most people. What country (laughs) on the planet Earth has more people 
than any other country. First correct answer wins a six-pack ah, six of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. Hi, you are on the air. Do you know the answer? Is it India? It is India. India overtook China two years ago as the most populated country on the planet. Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Lee calling from Mechanicsville. Thank you, Lee. Appreciate you listening. Hope everything is okay in Mechanicsville. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Hang on, and Josh will get all your, your information. We'll get you the uh, six-pack of Pepsi product and the uh, and the T-shirts, courtesy of our good friends at, at Pepsi of Florence. They're about as good a sponsor as you could get. I mean, we've been really blessed with uh, with exceptional sponsors here. It's kind of interesting. Uh, when you look at the world by population, there are two countries with over a billion people. Um, nearly a billion and a half people live in India. Nearly a billion and a half people live in China. For a long time, China was the most populated country on uh, the planet. They're seeing somewhat of a, this, this one-child policy uh, cost them dearly in the, um, I guess, the chase for 2 billion people living in your uh, in your country. Mm-hmm. So India, I mean, take this for what it's worth. This is world worldometer, and they're about as good as anybody at, in real time measuring uh, what the population is. Uh, India saw an increase from last year of 11,454,000. China saw a decrease of 215,000 people. India today, 1.428 billion. China today, 1.425 billion. So nearly 3 billion people live in India and China. The third most populated country on the planet is the good old U.S. of A., at about 339, ah, about 340 million. We've said for a long time, 335. That number needs to be re- updated, revisited. We gained about 1.7 million. Are we counting in all the people that come in over the southern border? Nah, I don't have any idea how we're counting that. That'll add a few million. But, but, but imagine this number one is India at 1.428, number two is China at 1.425, number three is America with, with a billion less people than China or India. The hell's going on over there? I mean, seriously, I mean, it, well, how, how, I mean, how can that be? Three billion people live in China and India. I mean, that's what, 40% of the world's population? What is there, 8 billion people on Earth? Mm-hmm. 7 billion people on the planet? What is going on in India and China? I tell you what, a lot of reproducing. <laughs> Enjoy your weekend. <laughs> that's what it is. We'll talk Monday.